allowed to pay back to you. should come in on the time you Well, the fair hearing kept me there. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that shit at all. You didn't feed me, he fed me. You're supposed to send those checks. I'm single issue. You never sent them. You never sent them. You're supposed to come in for single issue checks. We are not supposed to send them. They were sent before single issue always without a fucking problem, but now there's a problem. You have to use that foul language because I don't have to listen to it. Well, can I have today's food money, then? You can have today's food money. Why not? Your day is due tomorrow. We go according to digital. I told you that already. The best thing I can do is give you your rent money from before that you didn't pick up. I can give you your rent money from the 1st to the 31st. I'll give you an appointment for tomorrow to come in and get your food money. And I'll still have then to stand out there at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, you won't have to because I'll give you an appointment for that. Why still have you tomorrow? Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I'm Sean Glennis, your host, and I'm here with uh, Arlen Golden, my co-host. How are you doing, Arlen? Hey, Sean. Doing well. Happy to be. Uh, I feel like this is something we're, we're now like kind of work towards throughout the month. You know, you, mm-hmm. as as the month kind of winds down, you're like, all right, it's Weisman time. Like, it's let's, let's go ready. And we have a doozy to discuss today, which kind of like made it extra exciting. Um, but uh, you know what I did this morning? Um, I watched uh, a, the film, the 1927 film Berlin, a city city of a uh, symphony by Walter Ruttman. Uh, city yeah. symphony film, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was just watching it because I was just uh, I needed something that was like an hour long and I was looking to watch like something silent. <clears throat> and um his he was on my radar because his shorts his like animated short things are like awesome they're so cool but um uh i watched that and you know knowing that we we're going to be talking about Wiseman, but not thinking there's going to be any sort of like uh uh connective tissue and it was i found myself thinking a lot about Wiseman uh watching that film obviously it's like sort of a precursor to something like koyani skatsi right um but like and and it's known as like this essay film so if you're not familiar with berlin uh city of a symphony it's just this um uh film about a day in the life kind of uh it's like the rhythms of of berlin in 1927 it's on youtube right probably i I watched on canopy um but uh it uh flicker alley put out a restoration of it uh a while back and um yeah it just kind of like shows like what people do in the city, it shows like the um, indus- industry um, that's working there. It shows just like children in, in public and some leisurely activities, people in a bar, that type of stuff. Um, and there is no, the only thing that you see in terms of editorializing uh, besides the editing uh, is act one through five, like these cards. Um, and so there's no intro uh, to people that nobody's featured or anything like that. And it's like, talked about as this essay film and i thought about how interesting it is uh in comparison to wiseman who uh does the same thing like you know doesn't give you any sort of like uh information on screen about what you're watching and you have to deduce it um but because we are given like conversations about people and we're giving we're getting personal information a lot of times people struggle with that um, you know, because it seems like he's making a point and they go, oh, well, like you see, you see this in a lot of like the, um, 
contemporaneous reviews about what we talked about today is people being frustrated that we don't get to learn more about the characters in Wiseman films. Um, and it's just interesting to see these responses to something when they get a little bit of info about somebody on screen that they shouldn't get that info unless they get like a more holistic uh, approach to somebody. Um, but, but also I thought about Berlin in terms of a, a precursor to Wiseman city films. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the stuff that we see in that of like, you know, conveyor belts, uh, just like straight out of like Belfast, you know, yeah. um, or the in interstitial stuff of people in parks. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's there. And that's just like a, a, an influence, I guess, um, that I didn't think, uh, I was going to come across. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it's been a minute since I've seen that, but I think it it's kind of always spoken in in uh, re uh not relation like in proximity to um man with a movie camera and like these are both uh early docs that um you know are also grappling with like the onset of the industrial age and mm -hmm. how what that means for like humanity and like humans uh turning into machines or like being uh worked into like state institutions which is also very much you know what's happening throughout all of weissman's films right is like uh you could call it the stripping of humanity that might not be entirely appropriate but just like the ways in which um uh, modern society like creates individuals or has a role in creating individuals yeah um and it also is it, it's it's just capturing the this daily life you know it's not it's not it's not being like this tragic event or this this very mm -hmm. happy event happened right. in berlin this one day it's just there and uh um yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess another one you just m would mention is um, Man Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, Man Manhattan. Yeah. Manhattan um, yeah. But yeah, I thought a lot about Belfast, especially because that is like a, a movie about a town that is just circles around its industry, like exists because of its industry. Um, and uh, I'm excited to talk about that film in a couple years. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> But uh, today we're going to be talking about 1975's Welfare, which is Frederick Wiseman's ninth film. It's also his longest film to date. Uh, it is just shy of three hours long. And it uh, was shot at Waverly Center on 14th Street in New York City, uh, Welfare Center. Um, Wiseman shot for a month during January of 1974, shot about 40 hours of film. Um, and yeah, back in, back in the Big Apple for the first time since <laughs> Hospital, I believe, which, uh, obviously, um, it shares a lot with. Yeah. Um, and I think like, you know, this is, uh, a monumental work and it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like so good that, uh, I'm you don't want to talk about it. You just kind of want to mm -hmm. experience it and enjoy it for what it is. But, you know, uh, for better or worse, uh, it's our job to watch this film uh, a bit more actively. But um, it, it, it's a real powerhouse um, that is comprised of just, like, memorable sequence after memorable sequence, uh, uh, all of which have so much going on uh, individually within them and also uh, 
interconnectedly juxtaposed to the others. Um, but like, you really get a sense that like, of, of what it is, I guess, kind of like Berlin, a life in the day in Berlin, this is really like life in the day at the welfare office and like, just really what goes on there. <clears throat> I think it's, uh, one of the things I noted is, uh, kind of just aesthetically, but like, um, surface stuff but like this this is the first film where i really noticed like oh we're in the 70s now Mm -hmm. um just by the clothes yeah yeah exactly by the styles and everything and like uh just kind of looking at the long view of weissman's project of just kind of documenting documenting life in america like like wow we've really you know come some way here and it's and yet you know we're still in this quote-unquote like early stage of Weissman's career. Um, but like, yeah, this is the ninth film and like, like, you know, we've, we, you, you can visually see the passage of time from Titty Cut Follies to now. Right. Even though again, it's still in black and white and, um, right. aspect ratio or, um, Academy ratio. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, like a key, uh, American text of the seventies. Um, and, it's hard, like, I kind of want just because of our project to be like, yep, just another Wiseman film, <laughs> uh, you know, and just be rigorous. Um, but it really is uh, a special yeah. film. I think, too, it's it's a, a critical film for, like, the 70s New York canon, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. like um, you know, people talk about Taxi Driver and stuff and, like, this, this lost uh, version of New York, like... Mm-hmm. Um, the you know what what better way to get a sense of like you know the milieu at the time than than through this film yeah that's a that's a good point um so a little bit of context um uh this uh takes place well so he shot it in 1974 which is like a decade after uh president johnson um declared a war on poverty and put into place like these social services um, for, for people in need and, and uh, senior citizens. Um, and I believe by the time the film came out, the poverty rate was down like something like 50% or something. Wow. Um, and since since then. And uh, like I mentioned this later uh, when we talk with our guest, um, but uh, NYC's programs were known for how good they were and brought people to them. So what we're seeing is uh, a place that Wiseman chose to do this look at welfare offices um, by choosing a place that is known for how productive and efficient and what have you, like just a reputation of being good at what they do, um, which we've gotten quite a bit um, so far. Yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, how he, he always says he looks for supposedly exemplary uh, institutions and seldom does he actually find that to be the case. Um, but, you know, you think about, wow, like one welfare center for the entirety of New York City, you know, the most populous urban center in, in the country and just the scope of that vision like what it is to uh actually can try and implement like what you're saying like a war on poverty in this setting like and uh 
just all the things that would be required to try and make that happen and you you begin like like there's the the amazing quote in here of like you know someone saying a, a caseworker told them you know they process like two and a half million cases so if we fuck up a few thousand yeah. like you know our, our our track record's pretty good we're doing our but, job yeah 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 so like like that this film seems to highlight i guess the inadequacies of it you know you can uh, make arguments for and against you know whether or not that is a fair thing to do um but like i don't think that's the goal here yeah right like like i don't think it's ever weissman's goal to say this institution is good or bad this institution is effective or not um like we always say he goes there to just see what he can find and present what he saw yeah and it seems like his interest uh based on his findings has been looking at this gap between ideology and practice Mm -hmm. um and welfare is definitely has that in spades i think um it might have been uh anderson and benton that said it it does that more than any other Weisman film, but um, but it's definitely it's it's not just interested in in that core hypocrisy of this office, um, but uh, also uh, talking about like uh, what the like whether this is a fair treatment of the uh, welfare office uh, or whether he's um, giving a fair. Uh, perspective of workers and yada yada mm-hmm. it's worth noting that in the village voice review which we talked quite a bit about with our guest um there it, it appears in this larger issue of the vill- the village voice that like the front page in like big letters says welfare must be abolished <laughs> and there's like a story in there on, on welfare uh and uh james walcott the the reviewer of the film says uh that there was a new york times piece a week prior uh, that was like a report on a visit to the welfare office. Um, and he said that like Wiseman's depiction of like the inefficiency is just like mild in comparison to like the horrible and negligent like behavior that the workers um, uh, were showing during this report. Yeah. Which is the second time we've heard that because when we talked with uh, Naaman, uh about basic training, there was like another piece where somebody was like, this was nothing compared to what, like, this was very mild. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that's a word Wolkai uses is it's the welfare is mild compared to, you know, the times piece. Um, and that's like, um, you know, I guess going back again to purpose, which, you know, we, we get some from Weissman's interviews, but just, we could kind of infer from just, what he said about other films is like um this isn't an expose right and it's actually funny that this came out in the voice because village voice was uh invoked by someone in the film (laughs) talking on the phone about doing an expose on the welfare office they're like well i'm writing a letter to the village voice because maybe i'll call him too geraldo rivera okay okay so sickies so if if but if that's your main takeaway right that like oh this is mild and it's much it's much worse than we actually see here that really limits like your engagement with 
welfare of the film, right? It really right, limits right. like your your opportunities to take something away from this because yeah. <laughs> you know, like we talk about, it's just so dense and there's so much going on. And if you're just saying like, well, this isn't accurate, like you know, well, you know, what read read the Times piece, you know, like this is a film. Well, that 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 brings up a piece that uh, uh another review from the Times, I believe, uh, John J. O'Connor, that very Keith Grant mentions. Um, O'Connor says that it's like Wiseman's most pointless film, and uh, <laughs> uh, right, yeah, and, and I mean he goes on to say like that you know. It's pointless because, yes, we already know this. Uh, of course, there's still, like, entertainment to be had or, you know, expressions and anger that are interesting, whatever. But Grant, you know, counters this idea and says that, that Wiseman actually heightens our awareness of things that we may have become inured to or, like, even presents us with aspects of life that we just assumed we knew about, um, which is smart, but, you know... Uh, the, the power of the film is about watching a, a, the absurdity and you know there's power there there's a poetry and a power in seeing the captured absurdity of this process that is just deny like designed to deny people their dignity it's not about just like learning you know it's not like that's not the that's not the point of watching art is just to be like okay what can i learn okay yep Right. And if, if you're coming at it from that angle, too, it's going to be especially frustrating because so much of the film is similar situations happening over and over again. And if you're like trying to get information, you know, you're going to be getting kind of similar information over the nearly three hour runtime. Right. right. Um, so like like that, I think you you can just make the judgment from that alone that like that isn't really the purpose here right because why would he just kind of have these similar scenes happening in succession um there has to right. be something more to it than that and of course there is um so you know what we do get is like this very well i'll go as far to say plotted like well structured like narrative um uh and you know something else walcott uh takes the film to task for that we talk a little bit about is like it almost appearing like fiction and that people are acting in it but like you know well like Weissman always says that's that's a choice and she shot 40 hours of footage and cut it down to this nearly three hours it's like well why why do you think come on like just take it one step further why do you think he put this scene that really seems like acting in here right like you know like so yeah it was frustrating to read that but i think it's it's also fruitful to engage with and um you know kind of especially this being a contemporaneous review just think about how the medium of documentary was already kind of perceived to be this one thing you know, as it as it was like Verite at the time was like, what, like a decade or more old, you know, but it had already been sort of codified um, and understood by like a general audience as like, you know, these are advocacy films, these are informational pieces, you know, and not so much like these are constructions or works of art. Right. Yeah. Uh, he is not interested in just like journalistic truth. That's for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, like, and this film, I think in particular is really fruitful and like mm -hmm. looking at how Weissman constructs a scene and constructs reality. 
like he he talks about how you know there there may be no one-to-one relationship with like the chronology of actual events as laid out in the film you know things could have happened before or later than they they occur here but like you know you see um there are certain sequences where in the middle of someone talking you'll start getting cuts around the room and into the waiting room of another other faces maybe uh as something that's noted i think in reality fictions is partly a practical tool to kind of seamlessly you know match uh where the camera might have cut out while the sound was still recording but it also has thematic implications right and you see all of these people uh while this one situation is playing out and you're like well this is the situation that everyone here finds themselves in right like this this what's being expressed by this one client is universal Mm -hmm. among Mm -hmm. what what we learned from the studs interview is was referred to as the bullpen right like which is kind of uh, a telling term in and of itself is like how the welfare workers see the clients right like this is a holding area for uh, people who who are losing their humanity, right? Like a bullpen, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um. In in Dan Armstrong's piece, he 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 categorizes uh Wiseman's first ten films a couple of ways. One one which we can talk about next episode with meat, but with welfare, he he says it comes at the end of a series on poverty and institutional management mm-hmm. via uh, contradictory politics of like punishment, confinement, and assistance. Uh, which I thought was provocative. It's provocative to think about, um, like, to watch welfare and think about it in terms of punishment and imprisonment. Um, mm-hmm. That, like, these clients have seen this assistance and the, the, the ritual around trying to attain attain it as a form of, of systematic imprisonment. Um, and then you kind of, like, you, you go, you, you watch the film, and the first scene um, is have a seat like take a seat and we're going to take this photo of you and you are now a document and you have to prove to us like why you matter to us mm-hmm. um and uh it's it's a terrific uh opening scene that we get into later um and then it's it's immediately countered with uh the first client like argument that we see is this native american man who's saying like i'm a human being like right. he's like like anyone else and with this like quick opening wiseman just like perfectly sets the table for uh, a film that shows how this institution of assistance tries to simplify life through documentation and organized forms. And like, there's just this constant conflict of lived reality and the documentation of that identity. And um, like one of the purest articulations of that tension is like later when that man is just like speaking to no one, just pulling papers out of like every pocket <laughs> papers, to nobody. Papers. Yeah. papers. Look at these forms they fill out. A whole rigmarole of forms. Papers, papers, papers. I got more. There's one. There's another one. There's another one and another one. I got this. I got this. <laughs> and uh, it's it's uh, yeah. So there's just always that that um, conflict of uh, reality and documentation and like proof of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that is more poignant and powerful than just being like, oh, welfare isn't very efficient. (laughs) Totally, totally. I mean, there's uh, another great moment where this is articulated is one worker's talking to their supervisor, I think, about a, a specific case, and they're like... There's more involved than just what the man is doing. Yes, I know. There is more involved, I agree with you, but we have to go by what is on this paper here, and it says we are closing it because for the last five years you have never brought your pay stubs. He's bringing them now. Yeah. So you have to leave it open. Right. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, like, like you said, documentation is reality, and there's really nothing beyond that. And, like, your only hope, really, is, like... And people bring documentation, but it's ultimately not the right documentation. It's not, you know, signed by the right person. Like, like so uh, it's really, you know... It's expired. This, yeah, yeah, it's this Kafkaesque thing of, like, you know, bureaucratic methods. Um, but, like, like you know, all, all of, we still see, too, that, like, all it really takes is a sympathetic worker to be, like, you know, throw you a bone because it happens, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like pe- people are lenient and cut some slack in certain situations on certain things. Um, yet, you know, I guess by methods of like accountability, like institutional accountability, they have to have this documentation, right? Um, uh, that meet their rules. So if you bring in your lease statement and it says your rent is 175 a buck, 175 bucks a month, you know, uh, your your SOL because like it's 150, and we have this document here that says your rent's 175. So no matter what you tell me, uh, you know that's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One. I mean, one of the uh, powerful things about watching this movie is to watch the workers uh, deal with all of these situations in so many different ways. I mean, there are different workers and different workers do different things and also different parts of the day, you know, or different days for, for workers, like just, I'm sure all influence how they're reacting. Um, just like watching, uh, which of them, you know, make eye contact or don't make eye contact or Mm. what their deferment is like what their, what their style of deferment is. Um, if they like say like, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with this, you know, um, the law. Yeah. And you have to wonder like what a lot of these people signed up for and what they think, um, they're getting out of it. But there is, uh, I I was thinking about Mamber's idea of like the misfit within the the Wiseman film. Mm. And like, uh, I mean, this film is kind of in one way filled with misfits. Uh, like that is the distillation of, of the Mm. characters. It's like, we're seeing a bunch of people who like, don't fit in society or whatever, however you want to put it. And they're coming here to be able to like find a way to be able to, uh, subsist. And like, and in, in, in that way, it also kind of reminds me of hospital of like, we talked a lot about like how natural it is to want to be self-sufficient. And Mm -hmm. this film is all about people who are not self-sufficient and want to be. And that's part of like this losing your dignity thing that we see over and over again. It's like, I'm coming here because I cannot be self-sufficient right now and mm-hmm. I need help. Um, but anyway, uh, that's a hard thing to deal with when you're like all day when you're a worker. Right. And it's funny, like Grant talks about, um, uh, and by the way, like all the stuff that we read uh, for this, like from the usual uh, suspects is just very great. Yeah. Very, very good writing um, across the board. But um 
But Grant talked about uh, the institutional language that gets adopted by workers, which I found really interesting when like, you know, they become a nerd to some of these situations or, you know, the institutionalization of it is to be able to use codes to be able to like not face what they're actually doing, like to become distanced from the cold treatment um, and distance themselves from like the human uh, factor of this whole thing. Yeah, I think I think at some point someone says something along the lines of like every center works by certain rules and regulations and procedures. And when you come into us, we all work the same way. The other center they gave you the runarounds in September or October, and now you think we're giving you a runaround, but we're only working the same way that they are working. Okay. We're just using the wrong language. This is it. And like the people in the welfare, the clients are like find themselves using the wrong language, you know, the language that's incompatible with what the workers want to hear and, and what the institution needs to hear in order to provide assistance. And like, it's such a unfortunate thing that like, you, you just have to be like, my life is so fucked up right now. Like, come on, like, you have no, like, I'm gonna starve. I have nowhere to go. Like, help me, help me, you know, like, just like, uh, both for the clients, you know, because it's it's really just demeaning to have to do that and prove your case, especially when the stated purpose of the welfare office is to help you. You know, mm -hmm. why do you have to work so hard to get them to do what they say they want to do? Um, but I mean, you have to think about it from the workers side, too. And it's just like sorrow all day, every day for your whole life you know and then you see people like yeah. there's one guy who's upstairs i think has his own office and uh he's mm. he's a great character and he's the one that um hospitals miss hightower comes right. and complains to and and then like also uh hirsch at the end that we talk about later uh talks to and he is just like probably been there a while to have his own office right. and it's just like why are you why are you talking to me about this what, you're wasting your time talking to me about this and it's just like i well i you know i can't help you like he talks to um uh a woman and his, and her daughter or her son i believe at one point and um it's just over and over again like you can tell like it, it i'm sure it's easy to become callous and just be like yeah i can't help you right and then there's going to be another person in five minutes and you're going to forget about whatever you did to this person yeah i mean and and it it Another unfortunate thing is like you have to push too, or have to have someone advocating for you, as we see in a few different cases and different scenarios. People's family members, people, people's community members come in and really, you know, push against the determinations being made. And ultimately, what happens is they always end up going to their supervisor, and and sometimes they're able to find, you know, a solution or or a way that you know they could at least progress through the case. Um, but sometimes they, they run up against a brick wall. Um, and sometimes it is just that they found a, uh, not, not a loophole, but like a mistake, like in mm -hmm. paperwork that like all of a sudden now that we can help this person and this person I'm sure can feel like I'm in need right now. And, right. oh, because you found a mistake in your paperwork and now I'm in need and also of like, I'm worth helping. Right, right. Like, uh, it, it's all about the circumstances of so many things. It's, and, and the thing is, like, it's, it's an immediate need, yet 
they need so much more information than what is present in front of them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, even beyond documentation, right? Like there's all this stuff about various like marital situations and like, you know, is the husband working, the husband's getting checks. Like, so isn't that good enough for you? Like, yeah, and, but the hus- a good list of like all of the different, like things that we're seeing people afflicted with. Like, it's not just a welfare center. I mean, yeah. I mean there's a ton of different factors yeah but like like in in all of those circumstances it's like well you know and i mean you could use your judgment on whether these are excuses or what's actually happening or whatever but like like someone's in the hospital you know someone doesn't know where their husband is like um and it's like is that of material relevance in the eyes of the the office you know uh because they have no documentation um they they they're not present in the office they have to take uh the word of the client and it's something i think uh reality fictions mention is like um you're you're put into a situation of having to make the judgments uh that the caseworkers have to make right all day every day you know much like i guess like juvenile court you know we were kind of presented evidence in certain cases and you naturally find yourself kind of speculating as to guilt or innocence in each scenario um and it's the same here you're like is this person telling the truth um you know like like do they uh, is, <laughs> do they really have a great dane uh, <laughs> things like that but i mean you know i i find myself uh just kind of naturally believing what everyone's saying everyone everyone has a need here and um i don't think anyone's going to i mean you know people are going to do what they need to do to survive and get money but um not, I, I didn't find any instance in the film aside from the couple in the beginning who like tripped themselves up uh, talking about being married and stuff and they're yeah, like oh I haven't uh, eaten uh, I don't know like um, but yeah. by, by and large everyone just seemed to be like pouring their hearts out and, and just being in desperate situations and trying to communicate that as best they can yeah uh, that couple is funny because there's just like a natural drama to the scene where like you can tell that again you're put in the the place of like the worker you can tell that they let something slip that like uh, that he's married they're both married separately and that he's married and she wasn't supposed to say that and there's like this disagreement between or you know he's basically like being like why did you say that Uh, but but codifying it is like oh, i don't know why she would say that because it's not true and uh member says that it reaches this like nichols and may level of like dialogue from from a fictional uh <laughs> scenario which is true um but yeah you just get to see like that like i, I feel like we didn't get that in in primate definitely in, in juvenile court where you're just watching like um such dramatic situations play out in front of you um and a lot of it's just like implicit drama um that he finds between characters yeah yeah i mean it i think part of you know what makes this film so striking is just that drama uh, is inherent in in this institution right because it's really life or death kind of situations (laughs) in a lot of cases um so that you know heightens the emotions and the stories and and just the stakes um 
which I, I think we talk about later. Um, but that, that scene also has like this really interesting moment. I thought that kind of foreshadowed the grace they would get where, um, the guy asked to bum a cigarette and like kind of yeah. without, without thinking she like pulls out her pack and just hand, and like mm-hmm. you get sense like all right they, they got a good one you know they got lucky um that, that yeah, this is sure. the woman they're talking to um who who you know kind of uh conveniently forgets what they said about being married and and, and mm-hmm. you know gets gets them some housing assistance okay, right. yeah yeah take this go go just yeah go. right <laughs> yeah 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 and I mean, yeah. you know, it, it does uh, bring up the question is like, uh, this is noticeably a white couple. And, and I mean, we see uh, clients of, of all kinds of ethnicities in the film. Um, but like, you know, is, was that a factor here for this woman? Because we see a lot less grace extended uh, in other situations towards um, black clients uh, by white social workers. And, and you, mm-hmm. you, do, you do have to wonder, it's such like a subjective person by person thing, oh, yeah, like, sure. like, uh, you know, how uh, just the inherent inequity within this institution that's, you know, supposedly there to to lift up the most needy. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like a bunch of Judge Turner's. Right, uh, right. But, totally, but yeah. every Judge Turner is different. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Armstrong. Well, so later in the episode, we talk about like uh, shared um, sort of spaces that his films take, and um, uh, this and Hospital, as I mentioned, obviously share a lot. And we talk about Miss Hightower uh, later. But um, Armstrong had an interesting idea about how there there's a shared responsibility between hospital, the hospital, uh, and uh, the welfare center, and that the hospital you know we talked about it in our episode is like this very distressed system and it's helping people as much as it can but there's sort of like these structural issues that just are not being targeted in their aims in their in their solutions and um so what you get is this kind of like band-aid solution of people coming in and you're, you're doing what you can to help them and getting them out the door and treating the next person um but armstrong talked about how uh, the welfare center like could be treating like the root cause would be poverty and how much right. of how much of helping that could solve some of the issues that they have to to solve at the hospital that is causing so much distress. Yeah, like there's this there's that um kind of like iconic line in hospital in the middle about like you know these our sicknesses are men are not born with they're like manifestations of living in this kind of society right um uh which is certainly the case here and i mean across the films and i mean you you can argue what the root cause is but i mean by and large uh kind of seems to just be like u.s style capitalism right and like Mm -hmm. just like picking winners and losers and uh you know like just the racial supremacist elements you know that the country has always operated on and like you know so that's why uh, we see so many people of color in the welfare office and in the hospital and you know across these films um so uh, i think there's so much inherent social critique in weissman's body of work that like the the like expression of so many critics that uh 
point to like a lack of explicit critique is just like baffling right because it's yeah. like it, it's all there right mm-hmm. like you really need a, a someone to spell it out or like a graph to show you like how it is because like you know it, it's all on the screen for sure um did you what did you make of uh so in the studs turkle inter- interview with uh wiseman which is fantastic um he makes an interesting wiseman makes an interesting point about how it's a mistake to separate the welfare client from yeah. everyone um right. yeah he talks about how like uh he says yes like them not having money is a big is a real difference it's a big difference but uh trying to make the idea that like that their sadness is not just about the lack of money but you know a series of things that like like i said member like lists a bunch of different afflictions and things that are uh also embedded in other systems that are uh helping these people to not survive um but he was kind of like saying you know i would editorialize it as like uh a series of things that fall under life in America at this particular moment in 1975. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought it was, it was an interesting thing to hear him say. Yeah, no, I, I noted that as well. Um, and I think it's really crucial because uh, I, it might've been Walcott too, or, or maybe even a few of the people we read, but like, you know, there's this thing in this film about this, these, uh, like social class of the audience and the social class of the people in the film um, Mm -hmm. and the gap there. And I think that's uh, what Studs was asking about, you know, right. Is like that class discrepancy and, and she's like, you know, um, sorrow or, or um, like uh, what, what does he say? Uh, Despair is the word he uses. Like that's not unique to being poor, right? We've all, kind of experience this despair desperation um and it's you know here it is a symptom of poverty um but it would be a mistake to say that poverty is the only thing that can cause such despair and such emotion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and like but but i think uh probably more than any other film at this point um you do have to wrestle wrestle with this idea of spectatorship and audience um and and how it's working um especially and one of the things i really loved about the armstrong piece is that he's explicitly dealing with like humor and the absurd in weissman's work Mm -hmm. and this film and you know uh, uh studs notes that it's a very funny film and weissman says you know yes but because of the situations not at the expense of the people being filmed right yeah yeah and like like uh you know there is a there was a moment when i was watching this where i kind of felt like god you know is is this a weird kind of privileged perspective but i think as the film goes on and scenes begin to relate to each other more and more you know it becomes about well, I think something else uh, Armstrong notes is like this is a film about like the social condition, right? The social, right. the social condition in which we all live, right? And like the frustrations uh, brought about by uh, all the institutions we as a society have built around ourselves. Um, so like we're all a part of that, and we're mm-hmm. all complicit in that, and we all have like a way of relating to it, whether or not we have the individual experience of, of having to go on welfare. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it also shows that Wiseman is thinking about his films uh, in a way that he doesn't always lead on. Um, but I think it would be easy to watch this film in a vacuum. And I think like documentaries in general, uh, we are expected sometimes or uh, or like I think some doc documentaries want us to view them in a vacuum, uh, meaning like with like this deterministic cause and effect. Um, and again, like, uh, a big pet peeve of mine, uh, is just like, as if the documentary is capturing something significant. Um, and like the campaign you know, of Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of directors will want you to think that they're capturing something, you know, right. this, this place of occurrence. Um, and because that grants their documentaries more privilege and more prestige, um, and it, it's easy to watch welfare and forget about the outside world, but Wiseman encourages us to think more broadly. And, you know, he's also not, uh, ostentatious enough to think that he's capturing something that only happens in the welfare office or that only happens in New York. Um, it's, I mean, that's, that's what, that's part of welfare's power is that it's, it's a locus for social and physical and mental ills and how the state treats them or, you know, regards them and and creates them too and yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really like kind of in this you know sisyphean like endeavor of continually trying to remedy uh, the symptoms of its own like horrible policies right um yeah uh sorry i lost my train of thought um but it's a good movie it's a really good movie. <laughs> it is a really good movie. I mean, like, um, yeah, you, you talk about how Mamber noted that it's commonly perceived as, like, his best film. Um, and it's like, well, um, I don't know. We've talked about what the reasons why that might be. Why, why do you think that might be? I'm glad you asked because um, I had a note about this and I, and I had forgotten it. Um, but... I, you know, this is the second time I've watched Welfare, and the first time I watched it, I was blown away by it. And, you know, there are there are specific scenes in which, like, you just can't take your eyes off of it. The first time you see them, you're just like, can't believe you're witnessing this, and it just, yeah. like, keeps going, and, and it keeps, like, evolving. Um, and so, you know, the characters are one thing, um, but, like, you kind of go away from it being like, this is an important movie um, and a powerful one. Um, and this time I was... I think what meant more to me was uh, how we've talked about um, is that it is Wiseman sort of at the peak of creating a fictional document. Like it, it, it really is like a momentous piece of editing and the way that he's able to create meaning um, with his footage is just like so beautiful and poetic here and it's funny and sad and it's it's just like it, it just has it all it's it's a great great movie yeah i i wonder if um another part of it is i think you know for the first time in a few films maybe and and maybe even the most so up until this point like this goes back to the kind of way station uh mm -hmm. idea like you know like style. like some some kind of commons idea of like this is this is a place where you know many many people across various uh swaths of life you know have to go through 
um, and like the universality that that offers um, in this situation. Um, For sure. Yeah, it's it's a a place where life happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and obviously the title again is like ironic, which we saw mentioned a couple places, but um, you know where it's like welfare, but uh, the the people, more right. people we see, the less welfare we see exist. Right. Yeah. And um, oh yeah, I, th- I I guess I would like to talk just a little bit more about like the bit of Armstrong piece about like humor and absurdism, you know, because I think it is really important to Weissman. It's something he always brings up in interviews, as if he has to remind people or convince people that his films are funny. And, you know, for me, at least, it's something that that initially really drew me to his work. It was like this, like, humorous element to it and the way in which it's at play uh, with and in dialogue with, like, you know, just the inherent seriousness of the subject matter, you know, and creates, like, these further... um, opportunities for meaning creation by like the juxtaposition Mm -hmm. of like the humor and it was it was interesting um you know all the talk about beckett seeing that that or learning that that was uh the american publisher for beckett and godot uh was grove press who (laughs) (laughs) we we know distributed titty cut follies and like just kind of noting that like oh wow you know maybe there there were similar sensibilities (laughs) uh yeah. notice here you know from the beginning um but like right right so it's just like it, in this film specifically again it's such like a litany of um sorrow and despair yet it it is one of his funnier films um because i mean everyone's such a character everyone has these like thick new york accents um and like there's there's one supervisor who like kind of reminded me of Bugs Bunny almost in the way he talks like a letter from the hospital indicates that there were apparently extenuating social circumstances um but oh, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um but like you know uh Weissman says something along the lines like there's a funny way in which reality becomes the true surrealism like in documentary films because you're taking reality and as soon as it's in a film it's now it's not reality anymore right it's a mm. film it's it's construction and it becomes theater and it becomes like art and and you know that's the purpose of art right is to like create not not only humor but like other you know artistic devices uh, find those within the reality footage yeah, and, like, poetic articulations of things that, like, mean more than we can say in words. Um, like, there's, we talk about the scene with um, Valerie Johnson and the uh, Hispanic woman who interrupts her later. And I think that that is just, like, an unbelievable, like, uh, moment of found uh, comedy. That, mm-hmm. that, I mean, it speaks so much to the confusion that she's experiencing there and it's done in such a funny way and also the end the end shot with hirsch uh and the woman sitting next to is just like um mamber talks a lot about like how uh things can be funny and sad at the same time um and but that moment at the end is just like it's such a beautiful moment of 
um, just human reaction, I guess, uh, in something like like this uh, incredibly uh, sour atmosphere, you know, this place where people are just sitting there forever um, and waiting and just miserable and, and have to be around people. I mean, like, it's horrible to be in, like, the DMV for an hour, like, right. <laughs> uh, just to get something that you don't really need, you know, yeah. and then leave. Um, I can't imagine. And um, I, he would be a much worse film filmmaker if he didn't have an eye for comedy um, mm-hmm. it, or, you know, if he didn't care about that type of thing. Um, and I, it takes me back to asking him about the uh, dumpster or the dump truck in uh, in uh, City Hall yeah. and how he was just like, yeah, because it's funny. It's just grotesque. Yeah. Well, I think at other places he's talked to about like, you know, how he balances humor. I think this was actually in uh, one of the seventh row interviews um, in their documentary masters uh, book. But it was just like, like, you know, how he kind of peppers them throughout the film, how they can provide a counterpoint. But I think really a part of what it does is like, you know, the critics who take his films to task for like not being straightforward polemics uh, about social mm-hmm. issues, you know, I think it it's really much more meaningful and substantive that he does have these humorous elements because like if everything was working as it should, there, there's be nothing funny about it. You go in there, you ask for your check, you get your check and you leave. Um, but like there is this inherent absurdity in the way that the institution actually operates and the procedures that it implements that creates this inherent humor that like you just it's like the kind of humor you just have to throw your hands up and be like what the fuck man you know (laughs) like well a lot of those reactions like you said like taking him to task are like usually born out of a like fundamental misunderstanding of like documentary filmmaking right uh less than like anything that holds water for sure, yeah. It, it always seems to be just people like starting from an inaccurate place and then going from mm-hmm. there. Um, but like, not saying that you can't yeah. be critical of Wiseman or anything like that, but just like that type of uh, uh, that desire to want it to be in line with a very like purient idea of documentary filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know the fact that this is the sec- second and, and I guess unfortunately uh, only the second t- uh, time ever that um, there's a studs piece uh, relating to it. It's like, you know, stud, there's nobody more like social issue, right. Than studs circle. Like these like full on communist, like, you know, friends of the Soviet union, like FBI file on this guy. Um, and the, I think, you know, the reasons that Weissman's films resonate so strongly with studs Turkle is like you know he he can extract you know all these important significant class and societal messages that are you know all over these films and present within them without having to be like you know look at this bad thing and what it's doing (laughs) to society right like like i think his enthusiasm for weissman's work is like a testament to it as much as anything for sure well uh yes i i wish there were many more interviews with studs yeah um but yeah uh do you have any other ground cover uh i guess everyone just watch welfare right like if you haven't already if you've been avoiding it because like you think it's gonna be too heavy or something like i don't know it's just a really special film and and um 
you know, it, it is surprising that it's one of the ones that's not already in the Library of Congress because it like just yeah. seems so uh, fundamental and foundational to documentaries, to like uh, films about America, um, to like a specific period and place in time. Um, like it, it's uh, it's got it all, and it's like a film that definitely will uh, bear more fruit upon you know infinite rewatchings. Let's get a change.org going. <laughs> let's get this. Let's get yeah. welfare in. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So we talk about we talk a lot more about this film and uh, a lot of the rich details and characters uh, with our guest Orla Smith uh coming up here in the next segment uh orla smith as i mentioned um in her intro uh is an editor at uh, seventh row and they have a couple books uh on documentary filmmaking out and um both of them are available for a discount to wiseman podcast listeners if you go to seventh row dash or seventh row seven seventh dash row seventh dash row dot com backslash wiseman podcast uh for the next couple of weeks after this comes out uh you can find them uh for a discounted rate yeah um, and they're um they're two great volumes uh very long extensive so like if you've been listening to the podcast uh, and you like deep dives i mean like you know um uh, and especially I, I just appreciate like uh such robust scholarship on contemporary documentary uh mm-hmm. you know in and of itself the the documentary masters one aside from interviews with weissman i think it's got like joshua oppenheimer our boy steve james um mm-hmm. the creative nonfiction, uh the most recent one is is very very good uh, we talk a lot about robert green um uh, others like sophie Rivari, penny lane in there as well like um it's it through the accumulation of these interviews i think you really get a, a great sense of like the current state of the medium and where it's headed and it's just like great to hear uh kind of people so um Push, pushing the form forward yeah. and and thinking about him in interesting ways just kind of like express uh their their processes and influences and and uh the way they interact with each other it's all really good mm-hmm. enjoy our chat with uh orla and uh also you can email us at wisemanpodcast at gmail.com we don't have any this week but uh you can change that great all right cool bye Who's next? Come on, people, let's move down. Drop that in the box. Have a seat, wait for them to call your name. Who's next? Come on, people, move down, please. Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. We're here today with Orla Smith. Orla is the executive editor of the film publication Seventh Row. Uh, along with her co-editor, uh, she's put out monographs on Celine Siama and, and Kelly Reichart, and they've put together a couple books on documentary filmmaking. Um, one of them is In Their Own Words, Documentary Masters, which has uh, some interviews with our man Fred 
in there. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, you guys put out uh, Subjective Realities, The Art of Creative Nonfiction, which just came out this fall. Yeah. Uh, yes. And it features a lot of filmmakers talking about how much Wiseman has influenced his, their work, coincidentally, as well. <laughs> which isn't yeah. surprising at all, given it features interviews with documentarians. That's going to be the case. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so so how are you doing Orla and how does it feel to be the first guest from the UK oh it feels great uh, I'm honored that you've let our country into your podcast <laughs> um, we have been I mean I'm actually not I'm not doing the National Gallery episode that is, uh, <laughs> yeah. we have been represented by Wiseman um, but true. yeah I'm doing well I'm, I'm excited to talk about this film which feels like a very significant Wiseman film if that's oh, however yes. you define yeah, no. that yeah you really picked a doozy to yeah. come on for yeah yeah I think <laughs> it's it's one of the first like really long ones too yeah it is yeah it's the first uh or it's the longest of its of of his work so far um mm. but yeah, just, uh, be- just shy of a hoop dreams I think yeah mm-hmm. um uh but yeah so going back a little bit to subjective realities um with the name and, and subject of the book is also relevant to our interest just because, you know, like uh, Wiseman calls his work reality fiction or did. Mm. And then people just kind of like took off with it, much <laughs> to his chagrin. Um, but uh, uh, the, but as you said, the book features a lot of conversations with filmmakers, people like Penny Lane and Robert Greene, Sophie Ramvari, Zia Anger, and, you know, talking about their ideas of crea- creative nonfiction. Um and uh, we don't have to go too much into it, but did working on that book, do you feel like it expanded your ideas about documentary filmmaking at all? I mean, totally, because we were working on it for maybe like a, a year intensively, but also some interviews are from even before that, that we like brought back to put in the book. And um, I honestly, at the start of the, because what we do at Seventh Throw is we do deep dives into certain topics. And usually I start maybe being interested in the topic, but not being like quote unquote an expert on it. And I think that's an interesting perspective to go in with. Like you go in, you do the research and you come out with some kind of conclusion. And I I wouldn't say I was sort of like a massive, massive documentary aficionado going in and doing it and it particularly focuses on documentary of the last 10 years and like what has been going on in the documentary scene in that period of time because to be more expansive than that would kind of be impossible to do it in a focused way and uh, I just became incredibly excited by uh, certain thinkers in the documentary field and sort of realized just how many different things documentary can be which when you're just sort of exposed to mainstream documentary is it can seem super super boring um and uh so that book in in combination with the book we did before which is called in their own words documentary masters is have really sort of absolutely changed the way i think about i mean i'm also like a filmmaker and i just made a short film which when I wrote it was completely a fiction film, but it was based on something that happened to me. And because I made, because I was writing subjective realities and talking to all these filmmakers, I realized that I should be incorporating nonfiction elements into Hmm. this because it is already based on something nonfiction and it could be more potent if I just embrace the fact that this fiction film doesn't have to just be fiction. It can kind of be both. Um, That's interesting. 
Yeah, it was yeah. it was interesting. Um, one of the first things I noted um, was the inclusion of an interview with Marari Garima. Um, Marari uh, Garima, yeah. Garima, thank you. Um, yeah, whose film Residue uh, I loved. It was so good. Um, I feel like more people should see it, but but never really struck me until kind of being contextualized and your book as like containing nonfiction elements. I mean, obviously it's about things that are happening and, and have happened and continue to happen, but you know, like, you know, I could see like based on true events or things like that, but, but it was really interesting to just read the way the film was being discussed and, and kind of like, you know what? Sure. <laughs> Why yeah. Not? yeah. Yeah. And I, I, that book wasn't, that interview wasn't conducted specifically for the book. It was just conducted for a publication on the film's release. And it wasn't until I spoke to him that I realized that, yes, this is a fiction film, but uh, he's talking about like using documentary sound techniques and using documentary techniques in the way he captured the environment to like make this sort of fictionalized story also like a documentary archive of the place that it's set in, which is being gentrified and so it's changing and he wants to archive it as it is. Um, so it, like that is, there are a couple of films included in the book that like you said, would be perceived as fiction films, but it was interesting to try and like put them in a context where you can see how they are nonfiction. Another another cool thing about reading uh, subjective realities, it's kind of like the, the Yang to uh, in their own words is ying because um it it uh, you guys kind of like purposefully like skew away from like the canon and introducing a lot of filmmakers to people that are probably unfamiliar to them uh and so reading it and to me and like just being like oh i want to like watch uh something that this person has done and i would just like go down rabbit holes on vimeo just like watching short mm. films by these filmmakers um so it's a nice way to like invigorate people's interest in in new filmmakers as well yeah i mean it's written so that you can read these interviews without having seen the films hopefully it's all about process predominantly um like filmmaking process rather than necessarily like quote unquote what the films are about um although you know that obviously comes in so we, i mean we have films in it that aren't out like there's a conversation with um the director of flea which when the time which is about to come out but at the time that the book uh, was written hadn't come out and had only played a couple festivals but I think those discussions are still super interesting in the sense that they introduce you to new filmmakers and they're also accessible because it's all about an approach to thinking about documentary and documentary process mm -hmm. well it, it it's apt that we have you on for welfare because I think that welfare is where it really emphasizes Wiseman's fictional approach to documentary filmmaking. Um, but uh, was there a particular reason why you chose, why you wanted to talk about uh, welfare? Uh, well, actually, the reason was because I hadn't seen it before. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was this very significant Wiseman film. But um, I think sometimes with his films, you need to, to motivate yourself to see them <laughs> because it's like finding time in a day for a three-hour film that you really want to sit down with his films. About welfare. And really, about welfare. <laughs> like, for example, you know, I haven't seen Near Death because uh -huh. it's, you know, it's, 
a film I'm very curious to see, but also finding six hours to sort of sit down to like confront your own mortality is a hard ask. Um, but I was so so. Yeah, there actually isn't necessarily a reason for um, for why this one particularly, other than I really wanted to see it, and I had heard. I mean, Alex, who I worked with these books on, has seen it, and um, so. It was a bit of wild card, but of course I loved it, and I have a lot to say about it because I. It's also you know we've we're saying before recording or at the beginning of this recording that um it's one of his first long films, <laughs> um and he think he's become a filmmaker now who's associated with like long durations, um which is interesting because his early films are like seventy minutes, eighty minutes, um, and it's uh. It's, I think, one of his most... I, I always find it, like, difficult to know what are his most, like, beloved, famous films because he's, his films aren't necessarily widely discussed even if they are loved by, sort of, people who know about documentary. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this one, and Arlen, you can chime in and agree or disagree, or, uh, but it seems like this is... This was the first one of his, like, we, we, we talked about how some of them have have since been included in the Library of Congress, but this seems like the first one that was declared, like, a masterpiece. Like, um, it was covered by people who were big-name critics who didn't necessarily, like, follow the Wiseman beat. Um, it I, I don't know what the course there was like critically if if there was like just good word of mouth and so critics were like okay i should check out this this wiseman guy's film um but it this one definitely i, I think uh stephen mamber uh in his journal yeah. in the beginning says like this this pops up as like his best film and then you have to wonder how many other wiseman films have these people seen um mm -hmm. regardless it's very good which i think is is a like sort of a perfect encapsulation from my point of view is like um it, it's obviously like a big one um mm -hmm. and so people a lot of people catch it but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily more valuable than something like uh um near death or like missile or you know like all of the 80s mm -hmm. movies like just because it's like this big title i like i think a lot of people jump to it but um it's uh obviously uh a, a mammoth text regardless but um what's your point of view yeah. on it arlen yeah i mean it 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 absolutely feels very significant um and uh i mean i'll say to me in this current iteration of like watching all his films uh, that we're embarking upon it feels to me like his best film that i've seen mm -hmm. so far um in that like you know how, how do we quantify like best i mean it 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 has like a it's it has an energy about it despite its length like like it has this momentum that really carries you through the whole thing and it's just like each sequence and there are many many sequences and it, it's you know an inevitable shame that like you know some sequences kind of stand out more than others and are, are i guess written about uh more than others because like every sequence kind of seems to be very dense and full of meaning uh um and the mm -hmm. um but nevertheless like the ones that are kind of the canonical like ones that everyone talks about are just like such like 
I don't know, like many plays in and of themselves. And I mean, yeah. in, in, in all the writing, people are talking about Beckett and waiting for Godot, which is brought up in the film. But like, there is this thing in this film where it's just like, um, I guess it's just more kind of um, theatrical in, in sort of the way it's structured, the way like we have kind of foreshadowing of characters throughout. There are people we see in the waiting room who we don't know, but then we see them talk later on or vice versa. We'll see people have their kind of big scene moment, um, yet we'll still see them kind of peppered around through shots here or there um, later on in the film. Um, there's that couple um, early on where the, mm -hmm. the, the guy is a former social worker and uh, there's questions about their marital status but like they they're kind of you see them around like getting off an elevator or in the waiting room or something and it feels like like a cast right mm -hmm. like, like like there's like, the woman who's like mm -hmm. not like the, well, the she some dog. Mm, yeah and there's a woman who had right. a problem with like getting her child allowed back and she's just wandering around the whole time we see her right come pacing back a bit around mm-hmm yeah yeah so i mean it it is this kind of like uh world that's built within here of like and that's part of what's going on is like you know you do see the same faces day in day out you people don't get their issues solved they're told to come back tomorrow for an appointment right so there is this repetition of the real life people not just like the characters in the film and and this kind of uh helps to convey that while also further creating this like overwhelming sense of waiting like everything is yeah. waiting in this there's so right. many waiting rooms like you're always waiting for relief um but the fact that you see the same people throughout and then like later on they'll talk or they're hanging around like really drives that home visually and narratively that like um you know when, once people get their peace it's not over right they're still there they're still mm -hmm. waiting and yeah. realistically, that those interviews probably take up such a small portion of the ritual of mm -hmm. like coming into this office to get this thing taken care of. Yeah, but I think it makes sense that it, this is his first kind of long film because again, it is all about waiting. And I think there are scenes mm -hmm. that almost like like quote unquote go on too long, or they go on longer than you'd expect them to. The same things get repeated over and over again, and they almost need they need to feel like the scenes are extended beyond what you would expect cinematically because um otherwise you don't like feel the weight of people like having to wait and having to repeat things until they become redundant which is what the film is all about yeah yeah there, i mean and there's just so many characters um like just the film is just full of characters but uh but speaking to to that point specifically about scenes that go on too long like um uh we don't have to get into the the scene now but like there's one scene between this racist veteran and and uh, a, a black security guard you're gonna see more hanging than you ever saw in your life i've seen a lot of hanging five years old yeah. oh yes man lost my brother five years old huh they'll hang yeah. they'll hang like crazy hey, it's crazy what can i tell you you can't tell me anything. There it is. There's no way to control it, man. Mm -hmm. There's no way to control anything. We're what are we talking savages. about? We all act savages. 
Right. It's the way this country was founded. Savage. There it is. We're all savage. All of us. Black, white, blue, green, purple. All of us are savages. There's no way we can conduct ourselves as gentlemen amongst ourselves. There it is. That can be done, but nobody wants to take time out to sit down and find it. That goes on for 15 minutes. And it's something where, like, um, there's such strong characterization between these two characters that, like, um, also, if this was... If this was a play, this scene, or or a film uh, that had these characters in it, the the point would be made, uh, and you know the scene would move on within like five minutes or whatever. Um, so there's this tension of like, it feels, the tension between reality and fiction is just so like rich in this film where it's like it feels like fiction. It's it's like, uh, Arlen, like you said, structured like fiction has characters straight out of fiction. But then, like, the reality of documentary filmmaking just, like, pours through everywhere. Mm. And actually, it made me think of something that uh, Robert Greene talked about when I spoke to him for our book. And he's one of the people who specifically talked about, like, how much he loves wise men. Like, wise men is his idol. And their films are completely different, really. But, mm-hmm. um, but one thing that Robert Greene said was becoming... He became, as he made films, more and more aware of the fact that when you put a camera in front of someone, they're always in some way performing because mm-hmm. as much as things might seem very verite, like people are aware the camera is there, it's close to them. And I felt that so strongly in this film because you talk about like the theatricality of it and there are moments like the monologue at the end is like the particular one. Yeah. But there, <laughs> but sure. there is, like, there's also kind of monologue with a guy in the waiting room just talking to himself mm-hmm. earlier. And so with those the papers. two, yeah. And those two sections, they feel, they feel so much like the way I read them, especially the final monologue, which is like. You're the law man. You're the man. Everybody's the man. Don't have anything. Everybody's the boss. Brooke, it's got to change my best. Because if it doesn't change in the next 15 years, by 1988, there will be no United States of America. There will be nobody here worth saving. Everybody who is worth saving will be someplace else. And I'll be the first to leave. Because for 40 years and seven months, I've tried. God knows I've tried to help. Now I can't even help myself, let alone anybody else. How can you help anybody on 11 cents? Five days. Lord, I don't know why, but you still still don't want me to live. You still don't want me to do anything that I want to do. You still want me to do your thing and suffer. I can suffer for everybody else who's gone before. Okay, if that's what you want, that's what it's going to be. We've had this agreement for a while now. I'm not backing down. If you want to, that's your business. I'll stay with it until it's over, whenever that is. And if you don't want me to eat, if you don't want me to sleep, if you don't want me to work, I won't. 
And if you want me to keep wandering the way we've been wandering for 5,735 years, I'll keep wandering. You know that doesn't bother me. Even if there's no one, no one in this whole world that will listen to me, I'll wonder. Until you're, you're ready to decide where I belong. A place, a home, people, friends. Whenever that'll be. I got all the time in the world. And thank God all the patience and the strength and the understanding. Thank you. Completely something that feels like written. And if uh -huh. you wrote it into a film, it would feel completely OTT and on the nose. <laughs> um, yeah. But what's interesting about it to me is that that guy knows there's a camera there and he's in this desperate situation and he has all these frustrations with the system that he's stuck in. And he probably, you know, he sees the camera and he thinks, this is my moment to like have a voice about everything I'm right. feeling. And he gives this incredibly theatrical monologue and he references, yeah, waiting for Godot. Um, and he's so obnoxious. He, yeah, he basically <laughs> gives the film, it's like, he's like, this is the thesis of the film you're making. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Right, um, right, right. and it's, 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 it's interesting to watch because it is, you know, this very dramatic summation of the things you've been observing in the film. But it's also like this guy feeling so helpless and like wanting this voice and like thinking, well, there's a camera there, maybe I'll be heard. Um, cause yeah. you know, he's probably been in and out of these offices countless well, times. Yeah. You got to think like the, if you're just sitting in these waiting rooms, you're so bored that like the presence of the camera has to be like, just so exciting for you. And, yeah. um, one True. of the, <laughs> one of the things that, um, that he talked, that Wiseman talks about with Studs Terkel in their contemporaneous interview is about how, you know, they can zoom in on people, but like the microphone is within like a foot mm -hmm. from these right, people. Yeah. And you see it in actually a lot of the, the frames it, it pops up. So it's definitely there. But I think that that guy whose name is Hirsch at the end, who says the, the waiting for Godot thing, it, it's such a fascinating um, moment uh, because like it, there is a there was a review a contemporaneous review that was like pretty positive i can't remember what like it was you know a big like new york times or something like that um and it it was a positive review but like kind of curdled on the film's end saying that he was just like you know wiseman was letting him him act and get away with it and like spoil the movie's themes but like i you know wiseman does know its performance and and mm. he keeps him rambling and uh and then you get that great moment of him just like rambling on and on and on and on. And then you get that zoom out with the woman so just just mm. like rolling her eyes and you get this sort of like audience surrogate moment. That, that's so <laughs> yeah. great. And but, that moment does really break the tension because it's yeah, uh, it's laugh out loud. Yeah. But mm. like in in in, uh, in so Dan Armstrong, um, who we mentioned in one of the earlier episodes of the program, has a really good piece on on welfare and. And he, he compares him a lot to Eugene Ionesco, uh, playwright, and he talks about their shared affinity for, for playing against the text or using like these comic devices to like counterpoint dramatic action, like creating this distance for the, for the spectator, this sort of like distance so you can be critical about what you're watching. And mm. he has this really good line about Hirsch 
uh, this this moment it says like the spectator of welfare is is not allowed the comfortable position of merely draining off the film's political themes or reducing it to a documentary collage of liberal messages about welfare, but instead is forced actively to reconstruct and experience the realm of the political absurd that defines the system of welfare. Which, like, in other words, like, Hirsch is this perfect example of playing against text for, for Wiseman. He, he kind of is able to, like, have his cake and, and eat it too with him. Like, he, you know, he lets him articulate the theme of the movie without it being like this, this, like, quixotic coda that would be, mm -hmm. like, too cheap. Uh, he, you know, he has that great zoom out. Um, he's gently but, mocking him as well yeah and also it's just like but also letting us uh, le letting us still like even within somebody who understands the system quote unquote or whatever like that there's still such absurdity uh within like there there's like an exponential absurdity within like the the self-aware client yeah and but the fact that him saying this is like changing nothing everyone around him is just like can this guy shut up yeah, like, too, there's there's the <laughs> sense too before he kind of goes off on his like monologue let like you know maybe this dude is like pretty much an eccentric character anyway he talks about like all this mind control research that was stolen from him <laughs> and like you know maybe he would have been spouting off whether or not Weissman and Brain were there um, but it's interesting uh, that you know we've we've talked a bit about. Um, constructed realities um the the only contemporaneous interview uh, or review i ended up reading for this um was james walcott in the village voice mm -hmm. who uh who called the film a failure basically mm. um and um said that the like trappings of verite and direct cinema and weissman's methods like are not suited for this kind of thing like it, it gets in the way of making the point and i think he's a, he's really misunderstanding the film and weissman's intentions um but he's like calling this thing out specifically this like heisenberg principle thing we've talked about before of like people performing for the camera as if there's no truth in that right like as mm -hmm. if like what happens when somebody recognizes that they are being observed and then goes on to do like that is mm -hmm. its own truth and like this character and and how they move through the world um but mm. like like he's he's saying it's kind of undercutting the social messaging that like if this is to be an objective thing which it's not about like the problems uh and potential solutions for like social welfare <laughs> programs which it's not then like this this you know just takes us out of it right mm. so like like it is a misunderstanding but i think you know like you said sean like weissman knows he's performing and there's like, truth in performance yeah there's tr there's truth yeah. in performance yeah like, yeah like you gotta imagine while they're filming this i mean i from my own you know documentary experience there are moments you're shooting and you're just thinking holding back your face and just thinking to yourself like this is gold this is definitely going in right like and you gotta imagine that's like one of those moments where they're just like yes like go yeah like. i mean i take great issue with the idea that like just because it's performance that means that the the scene is should not be included in a documentary because like again like robert green is an extreme example but right. his thoughts on that has really shaped how i think about it and I mean, his films are a lot explicitly about performance in many cases, but they weren't always, like he said, his early films, 
he realizes in retrospect that like say he made a film about his uh younger sister graduating from college uh, graduating from universe from um high school sorry and in her like three days leading up to graduation he just followed her and then he realized in retrospect that she was like performing being an adult that whole time and performing like her dreams about what her adulthood was going to be and that if he had like known that and harnessed that he could have made an even better film mm. and and I think Wiseman has more of a, a desire to be invisible to his subjects I think in a lot of cases you know that the idea that they're performing is like so slight I mean I think and to a certain extent, people are always performing for the camera if it's there because they know it's there and they have that changes even very subtly the way they behave. But I think in his films, he does, you know, I don't think that's necessarily visible in a lot of his work and in a lot of his scenes. But in this film in particular, I really I like the fact that it is you can see that in several mm-hmm. scenes because it's the it's the characters like deciding how they want to voice their situation and that's interesting in a, in a different way from like if we were just you know observing them without them knowing they were being observed we get to hear what they want their voice to be and it can also be kind of funny at times i think i think too like in the majority of these situations um and and in reality fictions they know like you know it's funny that Weissman always eschews interviews yet this is a film that's like almost all interviews by the nature mm-hmm. of the welfare office but like the stakes are so high and so personal for each of these people it's like they're not gonna change yeah. what they're saying right. because there's a can't like their goal mm-hmm. is to get they're assistance right like yeah exactly yeah um <clears throat> Yeah, uh, in Benson and, and Anderson's article, they, they, they sum up, like, very succinctly uh, what Wiseman does, which is, like, he you know, he's not interested in, like, the culture. And, like, Orla kind of going to what you're talking about, uh, like, of giving these people, like, this voice. Like, this this place, mm-hmm. like, they're, they're being driven mad. And so putting the camera on them, like, while they're waiting is basically being, like, how is this person going to articulate their madness? Yeah. Um, but he they, they say that he he turns facts into imaginative activities and social judgments which i i, I thought was really interesting um mm. but they they kind of like opened their essay um talking about teaching Wiseman or like how to mm. teach Wiseman or how to not teach Wiseman and like he's like um, breaking rules and yeah they know. talk a lot about like the rules and ethics of filmmaking and how uh, Wiseman either does away with them or subverts them or, or what have you um, but I, I kind of wanted to kind of open up that this idea to you guys and see what you thought um, because well they also talk like very succinctly about his methods of like fragmentation and abstraction and like irony being these big ways that that he creates um like i said this imaginative activity and social judgment um but they 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 basically say like it's hard to teach somebody like wiseman to students um who are trying to learn how to make documentary filmmaking because like you can do like sort of the rote, like, oh, you have to, you know, learn the rules before you break them kind of thing. But like, really, you're trying to teach them the basic rules of documentary filmmaking. Um, and I don't, uh, I, I don't want to be in their shoes of trying to teach students how to, how to, <laughs> how to, uh, 
make interesting documentary films, but I do kind of question uh, like the usefulness of Wiseman as a pedagogical tool for filmmakers. I have to think that there's like, maybe I'm just being naive, but I have to think that there is like some potential and promise in that, like trying to teach like these different methods, you know, getting a ri getting rid of like the journalism and truth angle and trying to teach abstraction and like the things that you've been talking about or that uh, Robert Greene does. Um, and basically like what I think welfare is also a great example of is the, which we, we talk about this a lot, um, but getting rid of like the singular moment antecedent of making a documentary. Like he's not trying to, to like go somewhere and capture like this lightning in a bottle, like this happened here and I caught it on film or I'm investigating this big moment in our history. Like it's all quotidian documentary filmmaking and there's such like a push um, or such influence by like popular documentaries to make these like big moment, like capturing big moments of history on film. And I have to think that like Wiseman would be a good pedagogical tool to strip away that um that 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 mindset of like trying to catch something big mm, i mean you say it's difficult to teach wiseman but <laughs> i think it's also difficult to interview wiseman um which <laughs> we, I both, haven't actually... we both know that as well. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> I haven't personally done it, but I have edited several interviews uh -huh. that my colleague Alex has done and she's recounted to me what it was like and um it like she she as she put it in one of the interviews she wrote that it can sometimes feel a bit like pulling teeth when you get to try to talk to him about like certain themes in his films. But he loves and he gets very enthusiastic when he's talking about the process of his sound mm -hmm. and his editing. Yeah. Um, but I think in one of her interviews, he, she she says something, she makes an observation about the film. I think it was Monrovia, Indiana. And he says, well, I wouldn't know about that because I'm not a very deep thinker, <laughs> 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 which I thought was very funny. But um, but I, th I, I really what's interesting is because what you're saying is like, I think a lot of f documentary filmmakers today go into their film with a thesis that they want to try to prove. Mm -hmm. um, which I guess might work in some context, but also, and also it's kind of hard to get funding for a film if you don't already have the thesis of the film. True, and that's yeah. kind of what's fucked up about documentary and the way it's funded right now is that you, one of the best things about documentary is you can go into a situation without knowing what you're going to get and then craft something from that material and be guided yeah. by real life to create a thesis, which you can't really do if you want to get funded and you're not Frederick Wiseman. Um, right. But I, what, how he describes it is, it's like the process of like anthropology, for example, mm -hmm. which is very different from a lot of what we see today. And what is possible today in documentary is that he goes into this space and he says, and it, it must be very hard. I mean, I'm sure he has some biases, even if they're subconscious, but he goes into a place and he's like, I have absolutely no opinion about the film that I'm going to make in this place. I'm just going to follow what's interesting to me. And of course, what's interesting to him is also going to be slightly biased. But, you know, there's always an extent to which you're biased. Mm -hmm. But he goes and he captures this footage. And when he talks about how he chooses what to capture, it's in very, very just 
basic terms it's sort of like well i knew i'd need a transition shot so i shot that thing it looked he, he, like he said about a shot of like a woman holding a gun in monrovia indiana that lots of people have commented on he was like <laughs> i just thought it i just thought it looked cool <laughs> he just said that um and he's just talking about it in very kind of rudimentary terms and then i think his analytical brain fires up in the edit so i think he, as an editor he's super interesting to study and whereas his approach to shooting documentary is very, very nuts and bolts. Um, and that's why it's, it's hard to talk to him about like breaking down and analyzing the themes of his films because he's kind of reluctant to, to comment on that and is more interested in talking about the process. So this is why it's an interesting project to be doing this like podcast series on him and doing exactly what he wouldn't do with his own films. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because when, when you look at the interviews from, from these early films, he's, and, and like uh, Peter Labuza talked about this as well, uh, when he was on, is like he's just so much more open. And like in this Stud Sterkel interview, you know, he's like, yeah. he talks about um, identifying with subjects um and just sort of like basic thematic concerns that he has um mm. and literary references um stuff that he just wouldn't do today that i think he's just learned to like uh be callous about um uh, probably for you know a number of reasons but one is just to you know i don't know let people experience them on their own terms yeah i mean when people when filmmakers who make such excellent films as he does talk about their films as if like well i didn't really think about that or i just did it like i'm always very suspicious like, you <laughs> oh, you yeah. thought very carefully about this you know exactly what you were doing like i don't believe that all the you know i think he just is much more guarded now and he has the license to be much more guarded because he's an institution yeah right. he, do he doesn't have to sell himself anymore like convince people that you know his films are good um but mm -hmm. yeah i was revisiting uh, alex's interviews and it's interesting when she just kind of gives him a basic prompt like talk about like sound mixing you know he'll go on and on and on but when you try and kind of really drill in on a theme or something you know that's when you get he gets a bit more cryptic hmm. yeah he's not gonna be like in monrovia well you know it was an interesting time under the trump era. like this <laughs> no like, <laughs> Right, yeah. he, he'd have you believe he has no yeah. thoughts at all about the situations <laughs> he's depicting well it was, it was interesting when you started talking about um how uh, you were approaching the recent book like that's very much how weissman goes into mm -hmm. each of these projects mm. right like you know he he always says he doesn't claim to be an expert he doesn't do a ton of research it's in the process of making the thing that he learns uh what it's going to mm. be and what it's all about yeah, I mean, I, I, we write our books collaboratively, actually, which is interesting. Sort of like we did like a book on um, feminist horror uh, cinema, just basically horror films about women. And we, we asked a couple of writers to just write essays on the topic, kind of whatever interested them. We pulled everything together with some of the interviews we did. And we were like, OK, we have all this stuff. Now what's the thesis here? Um, which I think is, you know, it's less interesting to have a thesis when you've done, before you've done the research, because then you're just trying to squeeze everything yeah, in. And yeah. I love the way that he approaches it of like, 
I'm not going to go in with any preconceived notions, which I think is rare. Well, it, it's such a more like freeing way of filmmaking, right? Like of documentary filmmaking. Like if you're not going in there and saying like, okay, I need to get a scene where like a client has this kind of issue, or I need to get a scene where, you know, uh, two workers are talking to each other about strategy or something and you just kind of go in and like what's going on here what's happening over there like oh that looks kind of cool you know like like it allows for i think a more honest depiction of like what it is to exist in this space um like we were talking about the scene between the the racist guy and the security guard like like imagine just kind of being sitting over to the side like waiting for your number to be called and just kind of watching this unfold and like you know pulling out your phone and tweeting like this guy's at the welfare office is going crazy right now like (laughs) like, um but like like you know like you might just watch that happen uh because you're there you know and it may not serve a purpose as to illustrating like what is it that the institution of social welfare in America is achieving or lacking, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like what's happening in the office and, and like, you know, like uh, Armstrong notes. And we've talked a lot about like, you're always being implored by Weissman to create the meeting here. He's just offering you mm-hmm. um, these, these opportunities to infer and, and um, decide, you know, what, what this actually means. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, yeah, again, and maybe he wouldn't admit to it, but I think he's very aware of the meaning that can be inferred and he's careful to allow space for that to be realized. Like we talk about like the racist encounter between this guy and the cop, but I mean, there's all sorts of like stuff that you can infer about our race in the film. Like, for example, the fact that we see like many black people dealing with the welfare system and we also see that a lot of the welfare system is about being believed about the fact that you your circumstances you're describing are accurate and that you know you're looking for work etc etc and we see that being a struggle for a lot of the black quote-unquote characters in the film or subjects or Mm. people in the film and so there's a lot that like you can glean from that, but it's not something that he puts an inflection point on. I mean, we see like very explicit racism happening in the film in that other form, but then we also, we're thinking about that in that context, but then we see it in a completely different context in a way that isn't, you know, stressed by his filmmaking, but is absolutely there. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think I might've, talked about this on i can't remember maybe law and order or hospital but and and it also relates back to what mamber wrote about like his rules of watching wiseman is i think it can be a folly like for when you're first coming to wiseman and you're going to like sort of these bigger titles um you're looking for a like deterministic viewpoint that like what makes this film so so important oh it, it like it proves these things or you know it, it has this this perspective which is um uh not a very productive way to go into it and if you do you can go into something like this and be like oh what does Wiseman think about the black experience right now in new york when obviously that's baked into it there's all kinds of experiences baked into it but he's not trying to like distill any like big themes about like some singular like american experience um which Mm. is what's what's great about something like welfare 
And it's kind of funny, like, I feel like that's partly why he manages to get access to so many of these places, even though he might be portraying them in this poor light, is because to the uncritical eye, his films might seem totally objective, just presenting the situation as they are. I don't think that's true. I think he's a very clever editor and his editor's eye, his, his opinion is felt in this very subtle way. I mean, think about City Hall recently, like... You could what I, I bet that the mayor in the film could probably watch it and think I look great here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just doing my job. Yeah. But you can. T- there are ways in which Wiseman, through his edit, through his juxtapositions, is really making fun of this guy. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, but if you're watching a documentary in a certain way, or you're not sort of used to watching it critically, or you come in with your own biases, it, it does seem like. A, a completely sort of a, a just showing of a situation without any um, like inflection or opinion added. And I mean, I think if you did it any other way, I'm not sure. I think more institutions might be scared to be portrayed by him. Well, I think something we talked about in the primate episode was like, I think the people who work at these institutions are so deep in it that, you know, they believe in their work and they think they're doing good work. And they're like, sure, come see all the good work we're doing. Right. They don't think that, uh, let's back all the way back to titty cut follies. Right. They were like, Mm. I don't think you could make a negative film about what we're doing (laughs) here, you know, like, which is a hilarious statement. Right. Right. It's like, of course it's going to be like that. Like, but you're so, you know, like, just blinded by your own institutionalization and like the everyday nature of your work that like you're unable to see it uh as it is from like someone just observing which is what these films reveal yeah well and we get that again with this film um because like new york's social services were known like nationally and also brought like uh immigrants to new york to try and get social services like it was known as like the place to go in the nation like to get like it was known as like a, a great program um hmm. which also like adds to you know why it's so distressed you know it's just people going there like it just being like a funneling of people but like yeah i'm sure there probably was a perspective being like oh yeah they want to make a film about this program that's doing great yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i think one of the main things in this film specifically but also the broader weissman project is uh something i think in reality fictions they were talking about just kind of the disconnect between uh intentions and purposes and like actions and results right right and like the stated Uh, purpose of the welfare office is to provide assistance to those in need right but throughout the film what we see pretty much exclusively is people being denied that assistance and it's i mean it seems like the system is is designed to like come up with as many reasons not to give someone welfare as possible right before you eventually maybe give it to them it's designed it's designed to do the opposite of what it purports to be doing which is Mm -hmm. what he really highlights yeah, I mean, I'm, Mamber notes that we don't see anybody get a check in this. There's mm-hmm. not one, like, I think the most positive outcome is back to that couple from the beginning. Mm-hmm. They're, like, you know, given hou- housing assistance or something like but that. But they have to go somewhere else. Right, to, like, they have to go to the it. fourth floor. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, by and large, it's people being told 
go to the social security office on Broadway, come back tomorrow, make an appointment. We can't help you without this form, you know, like it just on and on and on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just, uh, you know, in, in that sense, it seems like a completely broken and failed institution. Yeah. Yeah. Which like, I kind of wanted to, um, Arlen, you mentioned earlier about like how there are so many literary references, uh, particularly, uh, Beckett and Kafka. Um, and, and it's wild, like how many there are like, so even within like the people that we read on, uh, Wiseman every month, um, uh, it's, so it's not because of like broader coverage that there's more influences brought in or literary references brought in, but um, within like Barry Keith Grant and Mamber and uh, Dan Armstrong and, and Benson and Anderson, um, you get like Sartre and Eugene Ionesco and uh, there was a couple to like Catch-22, Joseph Feller's Catch-22. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, I think Orwell was mentioned. Um, uh, Grant brought up Brazil. Yeah. 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 Grant brought up Brazil. Yeah. And he refers to like, uh, uh, Valerie Johnson as like a, uh, or a non-person in the Orwellian sense. Right. Like uh, literally yeah. lost in the system, like does yeah. not exist. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to talk about like particularly the Kafka stuff, because I think that that is really fruitful. And there was even a contemporaneous New York times piece by Joseph Morgenstern called probing the Kafka esque world of war- welfare. Um, that, yeah, so, so it came out like within a couple weeks or something of the film airing and, um, he brings up the Valerie Johnson case and like this, you know, mistaken identity forms, um, and says that Wiseman's film is a nightmare world where rules, regulations, notarized pieces of papers have a higher order of reality than the people they pertain to. Um, and just kind of like talking about how there's such a disconnect between reality and proven reality and that we obviously see it it drive people mad but um he has this great line uh welfare is a kind of barter system misfortune plus proof of misfortune plus time served (laughs) presenting proof in exchange for monthly checks um and you know knowing the title of the piece uh it comes naturally that you know he's talking about how it captures this ridiculously opaque kafka-esque system um that people in dire need are just like trying to navigate on the top of all their distress and whatever else they're dealing with. But the, uh, um, the woman at the end who like sticks up for her, her mother keeps bringing up like the vicious endless cycle. Um, this was given now this is before the case was rejected. The case was rejected on the 24th and this was given to her. The same day I came here. When you rejected her, she had this letter and told me to go here, Social Security, and that's where I went. She went to Social Security, Social Security's in the back of you. They're going to take care of her. Well, Social Security is evaluating her application. That's a different thing. Okay, but the meanwhile, who's responsible for her? Mr. Gaskin. He's in the hospital, as you very well know. I, well, I understand he's in the hospital. Now, what is she supposed to do? Checks are coming. Go down there and take checks that don't belong to her? They belong to him. Well, he has a responsibility. He don't want to give them to I'm, her. I'm yeah, bring, I'll bring it up. We're going into a vicious okay. cycle again, okay. and I'm getting tired of it. Well, as I said before, you'd have to apply for a fair hearing. Oh, and how long is the fair hearing going to take? And what's she going to do in the meanwhile while she waiting for the fair hearing? She's been here since she's been coming here since since, since um, November. Well, it's her responsibility to try to get. Ms. What do you think she's trying to do? Well, Why do you think she's going to court? You keep shouting at me, and you don't. You're sending me around into a vicious cycle. I'm trying to tell you, her hands are tied. She is sick. He is sick. Who is going to take care of her? I am not sending you anywhere. 
You telling me not to wait for a fair hearing. What's she going to do in the meanwhile? Well, you have to ask the application supervisor to re-entertain the application. What do you think I'm here for now? Why do I talk? I'm talking to you now for this. Shouting now. Oh, I'm gonna do be on shouting if you don't stop this. Ever since November, you're talking about shouting. I've been trying to take care of this one. What do you want from me? It, it also reminds me of, of the starting influence that we see at the end of juvenile court. You know, we see this like this kid with no options, uh, and this door that says like no exit. Yeah. Um, but you get these like little lines too in between these big moments, um, like where they're talking about like the staffing problem of the day and one of the women has to go to disaster training. I know, meanwhile, I, I only have two, three workers in. I need some workers. I'll work at the desk now. And also, she's Don't leaving in half a day. She's got to go disaster training or something. Who has to go to disaster training? Um, Roz. What kind of disaster training? You know the thing where you go every six months or something in cases of fire, flood or something? Well, we'll keep her here today. She'll, she can find out some other time. Well, who does she have to go to disaster training? Roz, excuse me. What's this thing with disaster training? Can you take another day, or is it definitely today? Definitely today. Oh, we can't. We can't release it today. It's uh. Roy, look at this book. I'm telling you, I'm. It's a whole thing. Is this a disaster training? Yeah, here. I got notes. I got um. Uh, cases is as I manage the telephones. We have uh, Look, we, uh, we have artificial telephone calls coming in from central office. I swear, and we answer it. We have to go back. Have to be here. This is preparation for the time all afternoon. <laughs> I go twice a year. Yeah, last time I went today's was today. Today's that went December fourteen seventy two, and today is February fourth, and and the last time I went was. February 72, twice a year. And Barry Keith Grant is like, the disaster's right here, like in front of him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no big disaster. And he, he, he has a lot of great stuff on, on the Kafka uh, discussion in general. Um, and he kind of talks about like the, you know, how the, we learn that there are multiple floors to this place, but we don't really get a great layout. It, it's like, again, this like opaque geography that these people are just like, existing in calls it like a sub subordinated space or something like that well multiple floors and also multiple buildings and institutions across the city that they have to be passed back yeah. and forth between in a way that's just like repeated repeated again with pretty much every case we see until it becomes like you know you have to laugh otherwise you'll cry yeah yeah and um i i know like so also the kafkaesque idea of like this thing that you're that you can see that you know that you're supposed to be able to to get um which like is is like kafka's castle like that's the the premise is being like here's this castle everybody can see it and you can't get it and it's like this you know hegemonic presence over the 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 people but um you know it's like i can see it but for some reason i can't make it there um, and I think like, uh, maybe t Thomas Benson and, and Carolyn Anderson bring up, uh, like the 39 Broadway as being like this, this hovering promise, like that, that they'll be able to get there, uh, that we just keep hearing about. Um, but yeah, it, I, on, on paper, I think some of the sequences sound like also this, this isn't mentioned, but, um, Boonwell, um, as I can see the box in Arlen's back. Uh, the, the, like some, so, like Boonwellian uh, ideas of like people being trapped uh, and or you know not having an escape um, and just being driven mad through that. But obviously he's 
his work is is more um uh i mean this is surreal but his work is a bit more playful uh welfare welfare isn't always as playful playfully surreal i wouldn't say yeah and to talk about how wiseman like inserts like shapes the narrative in the edit i mean he often talks about how these scenes are like 90 minutes or an hour or something and he cuts them down to however long they are 10 15 mm -hmm. and you think of him purposefully making sure he includes like the mentions of these names like 39 broadway and all these different services and floors and stuff to have this repetition of yeah like you said this unreachable place that um people are just being needlessly passed back and forth to yeah uh, well and uh grant calls it a, a pressure cooker the world that, that he creates is a pressure cooker and he does that through the edit right i mean obviously mm -hmm. this is a this place is a pressure cooker every single day for for a lot of people especially as they come and go all the time um but he also provides that narrative in the edit and we see it with that that woman who's sticking up for for her mom like that scene might have taken place on the first day that wiseman was there mm -hmm. but we don't get it until mm -hmm. like two and a half hours in uh where this woman is like talking about uh this vicious cycle and then you get this worker who's just being so obstinate and rude and yeah. and frankly lying about their behavior um mm -hmm. and but but that we get it two and a half hours in is just like a testament to uh wiseman's ideas about creating these reality fictions um that we've been watching people struggle over and over and over again like we could have seen mm -hmm. um like we get the valerie johnson thing pretty early and that is also like a good place for that film of just like setting up these ideas about documentation um but that kind of plants the seed that you get at the end like you can imagine her coming back week right. after week well, that's what um, Armstrong talks about as in his analysis of the film and comparing it to Godot is like the two act structure in Godot mm -hmm. is like basically repeating the events from Act One, but now it's you've they've been waiting longer. They're more like just exhausted and drained, and like it's starting to wear uh, further. So like like this is you know a situation we get in early on in the film uh uh you know the daughter is advocating in both cases and like now that it's coming later we could draw that parallel and kind of make this like thematic uh narrative progression in our minds of like you know that this is just reaching a, a fevered pitch you know this just continues on and on until you know something breaks um and and like you know uh miss mrs gaskin i think uh is is in the second mm -hmm. scene um but her daughter is like just such like a a champion for her and like will not accept these like institutional platitudes uh you know she's there to seek a resolution and when you come up against this system that like is just so seemingly unable to provide resolutions of any kind um there's they just butt up against each other and, and, you know, it, it really reveals just the inefficacy of the whole, uh, system because like, you know, what, if you can't provide a resolution, what, what's the point? Yeah. Walcott in that, that voice, uh, piece has a line about like anger hangs in the air, uh, which I really liked of just like, you can just feel that, uh, in so many of the exchanges. Um, and it gets even, 
more uh, tangible when you see like reactions from the actual workers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot uh, in some of the writings about kind of the desensitization of workers. And, yeah. you know, this is something that's always Coded present language. in Weissman. Like, you know, go, like we talked about in Primate, you know, like you, at a certain point, you just kind of lose a sense of you know the the pain you're inflicting right like like you just have to get through the day and do your job and like um you know it's interesting to think do people get into welfare work for altruistic reasons is it just a job you know like like but at any rate you know it, again going back to like the disconnect between the the intention and what actually occurs is just like uh, eventually it seems like they're there looking to deny service like all the questions are there to kind of trip up the mm. clients you know or put roadblocks in their way but it's like like you do you do see some good um, workers <laughs> like trying to advocate on behalf of clients to supervisors and stuff <laughs> you know it's really like as uh, kind of institutionalized as the whole scenario is like it it's perhaps more so than any of the other films it's like so such remarkably nuanced and human work like it requires face-to-face conversations and discussions and and like you need to use your intuitions to kind of like tell like is this person telling the truth is there something like right. more that's not happening here mm-hmm. like like uh, as like mechanized and root routinized as the whole thing is like like every case is different and has its own like specific circumstances and requires like a uh, kind of human in- uh, intuition to just kind of decide what mm. what to make of it and like you know the 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 movie starts out with like this really great evocative shot and sequence of people getting their pictures taken for ID cards yeah yeah and like like you know immediately from the get these clients are entering the system these clients are becoming data and being institutionalized and and on the flip side we never see the photographer she's only represented by her camera she she like in the as the purpose of the welfare office she like is a tool she is like a um a mechanism through which you know the institution operates uh, and nothing more yet this work again is like just so remarkably human and i think that's like a further disconnect between intention and and reality is like this conflict between um just the nature of the work and and the requirements of like a government institution Mm, yeah i mean it's interesting because it's like a film where we never really see the the villains like in in a i mean and i you know he could have tried to go further up and like meet policymakers on this stuff which i think like he does kind of stuff like that especially in his more like recent work of like looking at large institutions and like looking at all these different layers in them Mm -hmm. but here we don't see the villains or whoever is like creating these systems. We only see the people who are operating in them and the people who have more power over the people seeking welfare are the welfare workers, but they also are, some of them are more callous than others within that system, but they also have like only so much power to like change the system in which they're operating. Like there are people who are more empathetic in the way that they talk to people and the way they try to explain how to navigate this system, but it's still incredibly frustrating and unfair. And then there are people who 
um like there's a young woman at the end of the film who is maybe closest to a villain that we get who is very callous and who is you you have people who you feel like they're in this job because it gives them power over people and they want to exercise that power to feel powerful and you get people like you said it it is like there is like as much as there are rules to the system and how it works that you can't change there's also like you have a lot of power as a welfare worker to um make judgments on people like there's a worker later on who talks about how this woman has been telling her about like her living situation and how she moved from I think it was like North Carolina to New York and she was like she says to another worker like I don't believe her and it sounds you know and she's right, just talking yeah. about how right. she, so how, she says and you, or something like yeah yeah you have the, the power to treat people differently depending on to what extent you believe the things that they're telling you about their situation and how they got into it. But also there are limits to that pa- the power that anyone in the film has. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it sucks, right? Like it's it's such a luck of the draw thing. Like, it's the thesis of the film. Like, <laughs> like, like, but I mean, you're standing in line, you know, you're number 133, 132 gets called and it's like, you know, whoever gets, like I think about... <laughs> there's this place I go for lunch sometimes a sandwich place and like I have my person I I know is uh-huh. gonna make my sandwich like really good put the load it up with avocado <laughs> and if I don't get her I'm like god I know they're gonna skimp on the yeah. avocado uh-huh. but and it's just kind of the luck of where you are in line and and the case before you being uh finished but it's just like like you're you know, existence is just regulated by who who you happen to be speaking to, right? right? And there's no consistency. Yeah. It's just like whoever is next, right? Like like we get in the beginning with the person. It's like who's next? Take a seat. Who's next? Right. Yeah. Well, that that's such a great like. It, you know, it comes back to like the hospital opening of like the the surgery and being like, this is what you know. This is like the the preface of the film, um, and then it you know it ends with people in the waiting room still, which is just so great. Uh, but um, going back to what you're saying earlier about like not seeing the villain, it, it's interesting um, that we don't see. Uh, like how interesting would it have been to see like staff meetings and to see like mm-hmm. what type of stuff is passed down from from admin people but uh, um, not not necessarily saying it would change like the scope of the film but it would just be like added layer that I think mm-hmm. we would get if he was making this film now maybe he should right, do yeah welfare I think too. he would do that now uh, well yeah. I I kind of want to see welfare too because <laughs> I also think I was looking at like the the systems they have in place and how much is on paper and how much is digitized and I think about how different it must be now with like everything so digitized well now and I the mean way... like yeah we, we yeah. don't have to get too into it but like welfare <laughs> basically doesn't exist anymore you <laughs> right. know at, at least as as a as it does yeah it's too depressing that would be too sad (laughs) but Uh, like sorry but instead we we just get like this purely like Foucauldian system of like institutional actors handing out or you know uh doing the work of the institution and people who are powerless coming in contact with them and of course like as every Wiseman film has in between the institution and the people you have institutional actors and the actual like uh humanism or you know you have actual humans and the little like nuances of personality that come in uh that 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 peek their head out whether that's in good or bad ways we see it both here um but uh most of the time 
another good thing that that uh, came out of that Walcott voice um, thing is the voice review was he was talking about how it's like we're watching like people lose their dignity under the firmament of fluorescent right, lights. Yeah. It's like that. This is exactly what the film is in a lot of sense is just like watching people lose their dignity in order to try and prove that they are uh in need i I think about like i think there's a lot to talk about this in in um comparison with hospital uh they share a lot of dna obviously um but like you know they're both like a general turnstile for people every day looking for 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 uh assistance but um Imagine somebody coming into a hospital and having to like, you know, and they're like bleeding or they have a gunshot and having to like prove that they got shot, you know, like. Yeah, Benson and Anderson refer to it as the distorted mirror of eligibility. And it's like, like you're you have to, you know, have bad things going on or a lack in order for this door to potential assistance to open. Mm -hmm. Right. And you. They, call, they also refer to the looking glass self of just like you are now trying to create your identity through the eyes of the welfare worker right, and like right. see mm-hmm. yourself as you need them to see you in order to get money. And there are all these like levels to like that you can see them trying to work out like how far does human rights stretch, right? Like <laughs> there's like sure we should look after the person but they have a dog and do we care about that (laughs) do they have a right to have a dog because they're poor um should we just like you know let them leave the dog on the street yeah um and you see like little sort of the workers having to sort of reason and the, the people having to reason with like how much do i have a right to Mm-hmm. well yeah i i think a good example of of uh what you guys both brought up um in terms of like figuring out what you need uh from them like how you need to present yourself we get the uh we get the black woman with the maximum rent problem where like oh, that was so brutal okay now if is that all the money i'm gonna get that's no? correct they will that's not it. pay the rent all right that's it right. now will when it goes to getting my um unemployment the unemployment they take that into account. Are they going to deduct that yes, for you? They're yes, yes. In other words, if you get $25 a week unemployment, which is the minimum, minimum, that's $50 every two weeks, which is in excess of our budget, which means they would close your case immediately. Okay, so the maximum allotment I can get approximately right now from you coupled with unemployment is about $50 a week. As you see it? No, 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 no. All right, give me, I'm trying to find out the figure that they I They won't get. pay this rent. See, in the event that you were to find an apartment for $150. Minute, okay. Now, all I care about is if I had $150 instead of $175, they you're would, telling me they would pay it. Right, okay. Let's assume it was $150. All right. Now, because they won't consider, they won't put a maximum limit on that and say, ah, this is, you know, we will treat this as $150 and the rest she has to <laughs> make up. They cannot do that. That's right. Well, then, um, what am I, I'm supposed to relocate? That's correct. This isn't my, uh... That's insane. All right. Be now. that as it may, that's okay. That's I want to find out how I get that maximum allotment for $150. You would have to live in an apartment for $150. They will not allow you to live in an apartment for more. I don't I only pay partial. That's not legal. That's, you know, this is the city law, it's actually state law, that they allow only a certain amount per person. How do you contest it? You'll file for a fair hearing. <laughs> 
See, your beef is not with me. The beef is with the Lord. So she basically fundamentally mishandles this looking glass self. Um, like, she doesn't know how to present herself according to them in order to get assistance. Instead, she just comes as her true self, like, like everyone is, and saying, like, this is my problem. Why can't you help me? But um, that that scene is so, she's so expressive. Like, what, I can't articulate what she gives to this film. Like, she, she just has these, like, rapid reactions, and her face is, like, something out of, like, silent cinema. She's just, like, it, it creates this... Um, in that Studs Terkel interview, he talks about, uh, what does he say? Oh, uh, they're talking about Valerie Johnson, but uh, Wiseman said, again, something that he would never say today, but he says like the comedy leads you into the horror of people's lives. And this is something watching this woman um, where you can't help but like laugh because of her expressions are just so animated. Um, but you know, it it's a peek into like how ridiculous the absurdity that she's experiencing where she's like, wait, what? I, I can't have $25 to cover my end and yeah. you guys cover the rest. Yeah. It, it's interesting to think about, I guess, um, framing in this film relative to the films that have come before, because it seems like we're really back in like close up mode. You know, I think there's a lot, um, more tight framing than we had mm -hmm. seen uh, in the past few films, kind of like harkening back to high school a little bit, maybe, you know, it starts sorting to get into there with the zoom lens. Um, but that scene in particular with the rent is like, you know, it's so it's just tight on her face the whole time. So, you know, the, the frame is filled with her expressions and you just, mm -hmm. you know, feel the frustration of like this Kafka situation where eventually what comes to it is like, you know, they're like, if you want help, you need to move. You need to find a, a spot that's twenty five dollars cheaper and then we'll cover your full rent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Spend the close-ups are so effective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the close-ups are so effective in the film because, I mean, there are some great faces, like you've said. Like, Valerie Johnson has this look of total ex exhaustion, oh basically. She said she just came exchange. from surgery. Right, yeah. And oh. her, like, her her face in that scene is part of, yeah, like, the horror and the, the comedy almost of just, like, she just can't believe the situation she's in and she doesn't know how to get out of it except for continuing to explain and explain the same things over and over again. And you just feel for her so much that she just looks well, so then, exhausted. Then the Hispanic woman interrupts her Amazing. and he's just talking over yeah. her. And it's like... No, they say you will, be, you will figure out how much my budget will be in the hotel and they will handle it from there. But we cannot change any budgets after January 1st, Mrs. Johnson. Well, so the person may have been mistaken. Being in the hotel before January 1st. Actually, your case is probably at 39 Broadway. They sent you to the other office I because called, they were too crowded? I called 39 Broadway. She said, she said that I was just que lo necesito para mejor aclarar porque yo no voy a poder venir más aquí ¿sabes? quiero si me mandan a ver planear un, un sitio donde me puedan echar el cheque al cuidado de las personas déjame si encuentro una tarjeta aquí pues yo no voy a poder venir aquí ¿sabes? 
I didn't return it to social service. I returned my rent money I'm here. I'm calling 39 Broadway now to see if they could find so you know they okay. so they And brain, brain like pulls out. It's so good. And, and her face that yeah, is just like, yeah. She's well, just in the corner. Is, you know, of just the, another of, thing. Yeah, she's just like, she can't believe what she's seen. Uh, mm. Just this woman interrupt her while she's like trying to go through her process, and her she she you knows she's so docile the whole time, and probably because she just came from therapy, and also there's some judgments about her mental uh, health, but she's just like in the corner with these huge eyes, just like looking over at this this woman who totally interrupted her, and she's just like she can't believe where she is. It's it's incredibly funny. Mm. Yeah, um, the. The way in which, like, I guess going back again to, like, the parallels, you know, throughout the film and how we see these, like, repeated situations, um, it's just, like, I guess, I guess I, wa- I watched, I actually watched Waiting for Godot last night <laughs> because people, people talk about it so much in the pieces. I'm like, I need to know a, a bit more about what this thing's actually about. I, I watched the... Um, uh, one was Zero Mustel and mm-hmm. uh, Burgess Meredith, uh, which was pretty good. Um, but like, you know, there there really are a lot of parallels to it. There's like, um, like you're on una- They're continually unable to tell which day it is, um, which <laughs> like like same thing here. Um, they talk about treating a human being in you know a way that's akin to slavery uh like it's a scandal it's a disgrace um they talk about how waiting is a virtue like it's good for your health to take a seat you know don't stand up surely tomorrow that's the thing godot keeps getting pushed tomorrow and that's the thing in this film right it's like make an appointment for tomorrow come back tomorrow um so like you know you you can imagine in Valerie Johnson's sense, when this woman comes in and interrupts, like part of the exasperation or the hopelessness of it might very well be like, you know, this again, like, you know, every time I come here, it's chaos. Every time I come here, there's just everyone just fighting against each other to get their cases heard. Like, you know, and, and, you know, she got the sense that like, she's kind of at the end of her rope, maybe, you know, again, she just came from the hospital and she's over here, uh, essentially a non-person in the eyes of the institution um, uh, pleading for some kind of assistance that, you know, is is not going to come due to, like, a clerical error, probably, it seems like. You know, like, uh, this was when Barry Keith Grant brought up Brazil. It's like the Tuttle-Buttle thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, sees, sees someone just ripped from their home and, and imprisoned. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it like, and, and we could talk about, you know, that too something uh, grant and especially dan armstrong are talking about is like the prison of america like the prison that we've built mm-hmm. around ourselves um and like even though this is not a literal you know titty cut follies type situation like like you know we it, it's an open air prison right it's like like we are uh these institutions uh by their very nature um like necessitate how our lives are lived you know and Mm. and whether or not they give us help or not is going to be the determining factor in like what's going to happen to me Mm. and I think one of the most striking things about the film like and how it 
creates this feeling of like the oppressiveness of this place is the sound like the background sound the whole time because yeah. basically the entire film you have this loud hum of voices the whole time which you know like traditionally in the way you try to capture sound in a documentary you try to eliminate as much mm -hmm. of that as possible but i get the sense that he is like wanting to make this as ever presence throughout the entire film you're always aware that there are hundreds more people waiting which helps you feel like the urgency of the people and also the urgency of the workers who are like how do i help this one person and also these hundreds of people and then how do i get help when there's all these people here and eventually it just you get used to the sound and it, um, it creates so it creates like just further opportunities for interpretation and meaning creation too. I noted um, the scene we talked about with the woman kind of talking about getting her kid back. Zimmerman, we're gonna take the child off the budget because it's not in, with you at the moment. And if you get the child back, you let us know about it, okay? Okay. She'll be back as soon as I get another apartment. See, that's the problem right now. Mm -hmm. How long have you lived in this apartment? About nine months. But like this, this rats and gas um, leak and the whole the, the central registry, they're the ones who took the complaint. Now, I don't know who made the complaint. I think it was the hospital, women's infirmary. Said that uh, you have some diseased pets in the house. Yeah, so one dog is diseased. It's not my dog, though, and it doesn't live yes, there. But, but you can't let the child near the dog. It doesn't matter that it's not your dog. The dog is in the apartment. And that has nothing to do with, even though the conditions of your apartment are bad and probably you'll be able to move, there's still a diseased dog and they're not going to let the child back as long as you've got a diseased pet in there. Oh, yeah. Some it's, disease it's, that the it's child can It's not there all the time. It's there once in a while. It's my boyfriend's dog and he doesn't live there. But it only has to be there for a little while for the child to catch something. And that's why the doctors, I don't think, are going to let you have it back until you get rid of the dog for, for good. So better tell your boyfriend to come and pick it up, okay? <laughs> um, the whole time that's happening, there's this baby in the background crying, right? Yeah. And yeah. like, like when the scene ends, like, uh, hopefully with the mother going to figure out a way to get rid of the dog, the baby's be now being comforted by, I assume, its mother. So like, just these further uh, thematic and like aesthetic uh, opportunities that really mm -hmm. enrich, enrich the film. Yeah. Like, people can't look after their children effectively if they have to go to the welfare office every day. Right, and right. And, to, to, you know, to, to beg for help. It's, a, it's interesting to come after a Primate, where, which is a film we said was basically like a silent film for, for much of it. There's just, like, mm -hmm. hardly any sound. And then you come to this, like, just jam-packed soundtrack, uh, just, you know, full of dialogue the whole time. And then you also have these clicking and stuff. I mean, it must just be a nightmare. It adds to that pressure cooker feeling to it as well right like there's just all this like clicking and and cacophonous sound going around while people are just trying to figure out why they they can't get their their uh, needs met mm. well <laughs> i feel like this is a film that we could talk about forever because there's just so much yeah meat. are there things that you want to cover um <clears throat> or load that uh that you might have like taken note of that we haven't talked about well, one of the interesting things is what I was thinking about in terms of like just his body of work was like the by virtue of making films about institutions, like institutions don't just stand alone; they rely on others' institutions. Mm. And, yeah. Um, his his films are great adverts for his other films because I think that you see you see threads in this film that I'm like I really want to know more about that. So, for example, they're like 
there are things you can pick up on in the film about like the gendered aspect of this and how there are all these women being told that they need like their husband to do there's that woman yeah, whose yeah. husband owns owns house and she needs to like give over the, the deed of the house but he he owns it he's responsible for you <laughs> yeah, yeah and then there are people who are like people. yeah yeah and the people who are like i don't know where my husband is like what am i supposed to do um and you think about just like how this must be a nightmare in a situation of domestic abuse and then i'm like well Wiseman has made that film. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Then you can go on, you can watch domestic violence and you can like come to understand other aspects of that. And actually one of the secondary sources that you provided mentions that they're one of the, the characters we meet in this film yeah, is also yeah. in, hos yeah. in hospital. We got to talk about um, that. Yeah. yeah, like she's an interesting figure because she is a worker um at the welfare office but she's in like as i say saying that piece like a similar situation to some of the people seeking welfare right. and that she's mm -hmm. asking she's asking for a promotion she's asking for something that you know she's like uh not hopeful she's going to get yeah. and um in hospital is in it's more of a situation of power um so you see these different power exchanges that are interesting yeah. and, and like I so yeah that there's that that aspect of it that connects it to another one of his films and then there's like it, it makes you want to you get to kind of explore the entire institution of how a country works through like yeah, following threads totally. in his films and you can watch domestic violence and then you can watch domestic domestic violence too <laughs> uh, it's a really but, fun double bit. <laughs> but yeah like so the woman that you're talking about miss hightower which like I can only hear it the way it is said in hospital, like the guy who's on the phone talking to Miss Hightower. Miss <laughs> Hightower. Like, in like his extremely New York accent. Uh, um, it's so good. But uh, yeah, like the tables have turned and she hangs up on him and then you see her like wanting a promotion or like she missed out on a promotion and um, there's all this stuff about her living out of state and whatever and you just kind of like see this ironic turning of the tables. Um, but uh, apparently, I can't remember where uh, it was that I read this, but but um, Wiseman saw on like the call or like on some sheet, like the first day of filming, the name Hightower. And he's like, oh, I, I got to I got to find oh, out. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. I, he's I, like, I, I got to sure find out if this is the right person. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because like like that scene is kind of punctuated with the revelation of her name. Like, like yeah. they're talking about the form and they're like, you could just tell her that like Miss Hightower said it. Um, and you're just like, what? It's, this a, is her? it's an Easter egg yeah. that about 10 people well, will, will yeah. get. And, and part of the, like what makes his film so rich is because he spends so much time editing. And like, so like he doesn't forget something, you know, like when he's watched it a million times and he hears these like mm -hmm. earworm, like they're just in there. And so he just like has them memorized and is able to do something like that. That is just very rewarding. Yeah, mm -hmm. you got to got to wonder if uh, she had been a bit kinder to that uh, patient in hospital. If maybe she might have gotten that promotion. Car <laughs> Karma might have favored her. I don't know. Yeah, her boss saw <laughs> hospital. I'm like, I'm not promoting this lady. <laughs> Do you do you have so Orla? Do you have like um, other Wiseman films that that you've seen that uh, are just like particular favorites? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'll admit I'm not like, I'm not as up to date with his work as I'd like to be, particularly mm-hmm. because it's kind of hard to access in the UK. And mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, he makes these films about, mostly about American institutions. Mm-hmm. And um, luckily with Canopy, they've become very uh, available I, I, in North America. Um, but we don't have Canopy over here. And so the only way to watch it really is to like find like shitty rips on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I uh, have um, seen some of his work, obviously, and I, I, I particularly love a lot of his. Rec- I mean, he, I think with a lot of filmmakers, he's one of the few filmmakers who really has just like strengthened in many ways as mm-hmm. he's gotten older. Um, I think his films have become so. I mean, they've become longer. I think partly because they've become more layered and complex. Like if City Hall is one of his longest films, but um, he started looking at like larger institutions or whole like neighborhoods and areas, and he now has the tools to do that. And like I said, like I think if he made welfare now, he would probably look at layers above the the like parts of the system that we're seeing, and. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, definitely a favorite of a lot of people, but I, I do love, we, we did a podcast on Seventh Row recently comparing Ex Libris and City Hall. And I think they're both equally, ad, like, incredibly made films, incredibly so edited films. In fact, when we did our, like, if we picked the Oscars thing, we, we awarded him best editing, because how can you not? He's yeah, just yeah. a master editor no. for City Hall. But City Hall is a film I enjoyed watching less than Ex Libris, because I think City Hall is about an institution that functions terribly, and Ex Libris is about an institution that functions very well, which mm-hmm. I think is maybe a bit rarer for him. And so I think Ex Libris is just such a joyful film, because yeah. he's doing his Wiseman things, but you're also actually like, coming to believe in something <laughs> you're believing in the power of libraries whereas like in a lot of his films you're realizing all the ways in which these institutions are just like fucked yeah from the top down you have one that is a democratic space just by like its own design and then one that is supposed to be a democratic institution uh and it's debatable <laughs> yeah yeah okay well um uh I really enjoyed this. I'm glad that you uh, you came on and, and um, talked with us about uh, welfare. It was a joy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I really loved doing it. And I think I'm going to use your podcast to monthly catch up with any <laughs> oh. films I haven't seen. It's great. It's a schedule that I can deal with. Yeah. <laughs> That's the go. idea. Us too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, thanks again. And um, we will talk to you later. Without ever seeing that check. You received the check. I never received any check. You discuss it with Mr. Fagan. Don't discuss it with me. Where's Mr. Fagan? He'll be here shortly. Have a little way outside. Sure. Why not? I'll wait. I've been waiting for the last 124 days since I got out of the hospital. Waiting for something. Godot? Well, you know what happens. You know what happened in the story of Godot? He never came. And that's what I'm waiting for. Something that'll never come. Equity. Justice. Justice. Under, the, under this great democratic society of ours, where everybody is equal under the law, you know. Lincoln said that, didn't he? All men are created equal. Lincoln never took an army physical, you know. He should have known better. What's equality? Equality is when somebody has and somebody hasn't, and the one that hasn't tries to rip off the one that has. And the one that has tries to keep what he's got. And there's nothing in the middle anymore. You either have it or you don't have it. 
know, it's not a matter of middle, you know, there's no middle class anymore. There's just the, the rich and the poor. And I'm one of the poor. In fact, destitute, not poor. And I don't like the feeling. Not with 22 years of education behind me. Not with 17 years of service to the state. Not with a $22,000 plus income when I was working. Plus my private practice was more than another three or four thousand. No, but after being in the hospital for seven months and eight days, up until September, and not being considered fit to go back to work and having to resign rather than being fired, because I've only got another 11 days to go until they fire me from that 17-year job.